Well, hey there, freaks. I hope all is well. It's your boy Marty Bent here on a beautiful Wednesday morning in December in the year 2018, year of our Lord, here to introduce this week's sponsor. Very excited for this sponsor to be coming on board. It's a new sponsor. Uh, you guys have actually heard of this sponsor before. If you're if you're longtime fans of this podcast, we interviewed their CEO a few months ago. So uh, after this episode with Dan Held, definitely go check out that episode. If you're interested to learn more about this week's sponsor, BlockFi. Uh, no one likes having to sell their crypto if they don't want to. Whether you're paying off credit cards or buying a house, BlockFi helps crypto investors use their Bitcoin, Ether, and Litecoin without selling. Backed by Mike Novogratz, the big dick over at Galaxy, BlockFi is leading crypto to USD lender in the is the leading uh, excuse me is the leading crypto to USD lender in the U.S., servicing over 45 states. Uh, interest rates start as low as 8%. Visit BlockFi.com/tales from the crypt to learn more about using your crypto without having to sell. Again, that's visit BlockFi.com/tales from the crypt. See what they're all about. Uh, I've said this before. I'll say it again right now. Uh, services like BlockFi are some of the most useful in the space at the moment. Uh, Bitcoiners that want to use their Bitcoin to lever up and invest in themselves uh, are able to do that now uh, using BlockFi to take out cash loans using Bitcoin as collateral. Uh, uh, these services have many tax benefits as well, so definitely do some research on that. Uh, again, very excited to have BlockFi on board. BlockFi.com slash Tales from the Crypt. Check it out when you get a chance. And they actually have a special deal for Tales from the Crypt uh, listeners in particular to get $25 in free crypto added to the customer collateral for loans under $10,000 or $50 in free crypto added to the customer collateral for loans over $10K. Uh, applying takes less than two minutes. BlockFi.com slash Tales from the Crypt. You're going to get $25 of free crypto if you take out a loan under $10K and $50 if you take out a loan over $10K. This is a special deal for you freaks out there. Uh, hope you enjoy this episode with Dan Held. I know I certainly did. What is up, freaks? Welcome back to Tales from the Crypt. It's your boy, Marty Bent. Back in the studio apartment on a Wednesday? Wednesday afternoon, I believe. Uh... Wednesday afternoon beers with a, with a good friend I've uh, been conversing with online for a while now. Just had the pleasure of meeting in purpose, or excuse me, in person. I'd purposely like to introduce all of you freaks to Dan Held. Dan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Marty. Well, thanks for coming on. For you freaks that don't know, Dan is the co-founder of Picks and Shovels, uh, which is a company that is getting into a couple things from what I understand. One of your portfolio companies under Picks and Shovels is Interchange, correct? Yeah, Picks and Shovels is the company name, and it interchanges the product. Mm -hmm. There we go. Uh, but you, you, we'll get into it uh, later. You guys have a lot of plans for different types of products, or not a lot of plans, but you're you're keeping your mind open to building other products. That's right. Yeah, we're we like the idea of having a parent company to where we could have a portfolio of products underneath that. Exactly, which I would agree is uh, is a very good format to start a business from. Um, but before we get into what you're building now, you've had a long storied history in Bitcoin. Let's hear your tale. How the hell did you find this shit? A survivor's tale. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, It's been a long journey. I uh, <laughs> So, you know, in, in 2012, I had a buddy, uh, an engineering buddy, and he paid me back for some beers with a Casatius coin. So, it is kind of cool that my first Bitcoin was a Casatius coin. And I think they played a really nice role in the early days. 
of being somewhat tangible. Yeah, for you freaks that don't know, casacious, casacious coins uh, really yes, these tangible gold coins with a sticker on them, right? That revealed the private key? It's all the coins that you see in the news articles. Yeah. All those big shiny ones that, that every single news article has kind of splashed across. Would you be, today, would you be comfortable holding a, a cashless coin or would you want to uh, redeem it for, for like uh, a different type of cold storage? I definitely wouldn't be comfortable having Cassatius <laughs> Cassatius coin, <laughs> right? Because because you don't know if the uh, the producer is just holding the private key as well, right? Yeah, these were only worth like eight bucks at the time, yeah. so the stakes no, were a little bit lower. That's what we've been talking of at eight bucks at the time. Now they're worth. Some of them have like twenty thousand Bitcoin on them, right? <sighs> well, these were only a these are only one Bitcoin. I guess my my buddy yeah. was cheap. Yeah. <laughs> now the, we were uh, we were talking in a group chat earlier. Somebody somebody claimed a ca- cashless coin in the last couple of weeks. You were able to tell, um, and it had like something crazy, like thousands of Bitcoin on it. Yeah, I saw that. It's funny that someone would hodl that long and sell now. Right. I'm not really sure I understand that. But uh, who knows? Maybe they're just looking to upgrade the Segwit. I don't know if it got sent to an exchange or what happened with it. True. We just saw it move. We didn't know where it went. Yes. So your friend's giving you this cash, this coin. It's 2012. Where are you? I'm in Dallas, Texas. And I worked uh, in finance at the time. That's what I studied in undergrad. And for me, I was, I was always a big Austrian school of economics sort of guy, libertarian ideology. Um, you know, for, for going through undergrad during the 2008 financial crisis, I learned that everything that I had read and all the smartest people at the university and all the people quoted in my books had no fucking idea what they were talking about <laughs> at all. Right. And I got fed that same Michigan bullshit too. <laughs> It's this, you know, complexity theater, as Nathaniel um, Nathaniel Whitmore puts it. This this hand wavy. Oh, we couldn't, we we didn't see this coming, so that means no one could have seen it coming. We're not responsible for an event that is, you know, a tail risk event. And just seeing, you know, seeing the reactions of of stakeholders in the system when everything goes poorly, definitely kind of scarred my my um, my belief in the system whether that be the monetary system or the political system. And so when Bitcoin came around with my libertarian ideology and those scars from the 2008 financial crisis, I was more open to it, I think, than a lot of other people, um, more cognizant that this was a solution. Yeah, that's a very, very similar way uh, that I came into it. Uh, I don't know how far along undergrad you were, but I was a senior in high school taking, uh, an economics elective while 2008 was going on that fall. And that's what opened my eyes. I didn't find Bitcoin till four or five years later, but, uh, that definitely was the, the spark that event and being in that class at that point in time was the spark that sent me down the path that would eventually lead me to find Bitcoin. Um, so what was the first realization you had? Like, was it the cashless coin or did you have to sort of, yeah. And then I started playing around with, man, my first wallet was the Bitcoin QT wallet Mm -hmm. and, uh, bought some coins on Gox (laughs) and I'm, you know, fucking wiring money to Japan. And I'm like, what what the hell am I doing? (laughs) (laughs) You know, I I didn't have a ton of money at the time, right? It was right after college for me. And so I'm, I'm sitting my preciously earned money in my you know first analyst role outside of college <laughs> to mark Carpellis's cat the ceo of mount gox yeah mark Carpellis <laughs> is the ceo enjoying his really frothy milkshakes or whatever he, those huge did you see that picture 
We had a big coffee with like whipped cream and like cherries on it. <laughs> uh, there was a, it was a thing during the the meltdown of Mount Cox where people were kind of critical about that and his He's, bouncy ball chair. He seems like a frappuccino type guy. Yeah, yeah. Well, he, he's lost some weight. He looks good now. I you would know, have lost like, weight too if I had that amount of stress on me on my shoulders. Yeah. yeah, he's like tan and I skinny now. Gained weight. Yeah. Who knows? <laughs> um, well, so yeah, I'm I'm wiring money to to Mount Gox and sending transactions here and there. Um, you know, for me, really thought the immutability of it and the you know the idea that it had a really you know really hard money characteristics um, with the 21 million hard cap was really really interesting. And then my the small investment firm I worked for relocated me to San Francisco in January 2013. So I get out there and I go try to find other people that believe in what I believe in. And so I find the Bitcoin meetup, mm-hmm. which was hosted by Trade Hill, Jared Kenna, and Ryan Singer. Ryan's now over at Chia as the CEO. Okay. And so... That's Bram Cohen's project, right? That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, which is an interesting one. And we can dive into that a little bit later but yeah so they uh trade hill was the the host of the party um or host of the event and they were the first u.s exchange before coinbase before anyone else and at that event there was only 10 other people and it was like charlie lee brian and fred from coinbase jared kennett uh, uh jed mccaleb um brian from lightning and, <laughs> and me and a, f- a few other people and uh it was like a really tiny community, really tiny group. And March 2013 hit, you know, and that the old group, all we had was like a, a cooler full of shitty PBRs. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, there's no budgets. <laughs> this was this was everyone pitched in a little bit of money. And um, March 2013 hit, and the price went from $10 to 260 and the place was jam-packed with like 100 people. And there's VCs literally slinging out business cards. I just remember a VC literally going person to person, like handing out business cards. And that was the moment for me when I decided I wanted to go build my first product was, was right around then. Had you, so you're in finance before, so you have a very similar past Dan. I was in finance and then wanted to get into product stuff as well. So what drew you to products in particular? Was there anything, uh, outside of Bitcoin or you seeing consumer apps that were sort of piquing your interest? I know you worked at Uber eventually down the line. Um, so there's something about like I want to I want to touch on this because I was in finance too and I was drawn to the allure of tech and and building stuff and I just feel like I wasn't afforded that opportunity in a financial job. I think finance people are a, a pretty good fit for product. Mm-hmm. Um, they're typically forward, good communicators. They can look at strategically and then break that strategic goal down into like more granular goals and communicate that to the other stakeholders. Mm-hmm. Also, whether it be like feature set or product strategy, being being cognizant of what the market wants and what the market's doing, which would be like, does your product have features that the market's going to want in the future? And so I, I'm not going to pretend like I was an expert back then. I kind of stumbled and bumbled my way through it. We uh, So the product was called Zero Block. <laughs> I remember Zero Block. <clears throat> yeah, it was. Uh, so people really liked it for its simplistic design. It was mm-hmm. flat UI before flat UI was a thing. It was uh, like portfolio news, right? Yeah, it was kind of like the blockfolio equivalent yes. in 2013. Yeah, um, It was the most popular crypto mobile app mm-hmm. in 2013, which is kind of like being the tallest midget, but you know. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, got, I had it. I, I got that going for me, I guess. Um, but yeah, like the design was really simple because 
I, I designed it in Photoshop myself. <laughs> and I couldn't design anything more complex. I couldn't add like bevels and and you know a really good color scheme. So I just went black and white. <laughs> and people liked it because it was super simple. And later when I formalized my product skills, I realized what I had built was something that showed someone the value in the product right away. So I basically had removed all onboarding friction. Mm-hmm. And then when they sessioned after they installed the product for the first time, they found value immediately. Right. It's like Craigslist. Craigslist is uh, not the best uh, UI from the aesthetics standpoint, but you know exactly what you're going to get when you get on there. Hey, I found yep. housing here. I can buy junk here. That's Sell right. There. Yeah. That's my favorite uh, example of a product with great UX, but terrible aesthetic design. Totally. I'd, I'd like to say that my product was better designed than Craigslist, though. Yeah, but yeah. the the point uh, trying to get at here is that the minimum the, the minimum viable product really does need like the bare minimum, and and that's what it was. Yeah. It was a bare bones, but but a needed set of features, and and one of those key features was real time market data, which all the other developers in this space hadn't. They weren't pinging the APIs every like minute. Mm-hmm. They were doing it every fifteen minutes. And in the 2000, early 2013 bubble from $10 to 260, everyone was sessioning on these mobile products all the time. And, a, and it was really hard to find the real-time price. And as the price is fluctuating, everyone wanted to check it. And so that's why we built it. We kind of built it for ourselves. What uh, was zero link in particular? What was like, or zero block, excuse me, in particular, what was the, uh, what was the biggest lesson you learned? That first product? Uh, One was removing. selling it, correct? Yeah, blockchain.com bought it. Oh yeah. Blockchain.info for the old 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 timers. I still type in dot info. They'll redirect me, but it's, <laughs> it's a weird brand now. I'm not sure why they've kept it. Um back in 2012, 2013, it made a lot of sense because blockchain wasn't a popular term. Mm-hmm. But the brand confusion that they have now is incredible. I I don't know anyone in San Francisco, new someone new that I've met that understands what blockchain.com is as a company. Really? Yeah, I haven't met one person who who recognizes that brand. Yeah, uh, it's different than Bitcoin. Eh, Bitcoin. I actually had a conversation about Bitcoin.com today. It's a similar situation, but I, I feel like they they took the better route to Blockchain.com. If you're gonna try to corner a certain name in the, or a certain word in this this space. Fun fact: I I loved the redesign of Bitcoin.com when it was uh, when Roger first purchased it. Really? Yeah. <laughs> so if you do the Wayback Machine, I think to like mid 2014, I forget when the redesign was. Did he buy it straight from a registrar or from a person? He brought it. He bought it from a person. Uh, I was with him in Miami when he did. Yeah. Um, I'm not going to identify the person, but I'm not going to. Yeah. We're not, we're not about was, doxing on this. Right, right. I know that wasn't the intention, but yeah, yeah he uh, when he purchased that, we were trying to figure out what to do with the property, and he kind of like leased it to blockchain.info. Really? Yeah, so we had, yeah, I mean, this is a long time ago. I'm trying to think details-wise, but essentially my role was to, I was like, well, what do we do with this? <laughs> I mean, Bitcoin wasn't nearly as popular as it is now, so I'm like, okay, well, you know, what do people want to find on this site? Ultimately, it was like people want to figure out how to buy Bitcoin. Right. So that was the the above the fold content. It's uh, now that is probably the number one use case of Bitcoin.com that I find these days is people looking where to buy Bitcoin, and they actually do have a thorough list of exchanges if you're looking. It's not uh not too biased towards Bcash, but uh, that's where I'm a little disappointed with Roger. Yeah. I like his libertarian ideology, but fraud isn't libertarian, and purposely intentionally 
confusing someone when you call something Bitcoin Core and you use a different logo. Mm-hmm. You know that, and calling Bitcoin Cash an upgrade, I think is is malicious. And honestly, I, I don't understand how you can kind of like live with that decision. Uh, knowing that you're like tens of thousands or maybe a hundred thousand people go there and you're intentionally, it's like you go to the store and there's someone who has Pepsi and Coke. Mm-hmm. And they've taken the Coke wrapper and wrapped it around the Pepsi. Right. Or even worse, taking the RC Cola <laughs> and wrapped it around. That, yeah, that's, that's uh, what's that, Bitcoin SV? Yeah. <laughs> The BCHSV, excuse me. Oh, man. I, I can't keep track. <laughs> no, but it is. I think we're actually going down like an interesting path here. And I like it because let's touch on this. Like Roger, like I think he he is a victim of being too early. And I think, uh, you, and I think you are a perfect example of somebody who explored these uh, options and ways of scaling early on and sort of realize that, hey, these don't work. I'm not going to like force the issue just because of my ego. Whereas, because you work with ChangeTip, which try to do microtransactions. Right. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But uh, it seems like you've evolved more with Bitcoin's evolution than a lot of people have. And I think that is uh, a thing that scars a lot of early adopters or a few, at least a few in particular, who just let their ego get in the way and have their position perception of what bitcoin was at a certain point of time dictate what it is going forward and we have to be very uh open to the fact that bitcoin is a living changing organism nice nice (laughs) (laughs) uh you know i think with roger in particular um you know remember he had a persona called bitcoin jesus Mm -hmm. so this became something deeply embedded in his psyche yeah like who he was was someone who could give away bitcoins or convince you know, look, I've been at the restaurant dinner, like the dinners at restaurants where he's convincing the, the restaurant owner to buy, to, to accept Bitcoin. It's a very uncomfortable conversation. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> just take it. <laughs> <laughs> look, uh, yeah, it's, you know, the hard pitch is different than someone who's looking to, to believe in it. Anyway, so, you know, I think for Roger, like the cheap transactions, you know, giving away Bitcoin seeing you know he's he's getting these merchants to use it he's the one who's using it at the merchant you know he's he's a true you know 100 percent bitcoiner right yeah and so evangelist a true evangelist yeah and so when the hard decision happened when it's like well do we maintain cheap transactions or do we give up the only reason why any of this is valuable which is like the immutable the immutability of bitcoin he couldn't divorce his emotion like his emotion and, and psyche away from the best, you know, he couldn't divorce what he wanted and what he was with what the protocol really needed. Mm-hmm. And so I understand why he chose the way that he did. Yes. And Roger, if you're listening out there, I doubt you are. We'll accept you back with bo- open arms, man. I don't know if we'll, we'll trust you a hundred percent. We'll definitely have you uh, cheerleading Bitcoin. If you ever want to come back, we won't trust, but we'll verify. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, you know, I, I think, I think at the end of the day, Roger does come back. Yeah. Um, I don't see a really bright future for Bitcoin Cash. Well, after what I witnessed last night with what's going on with Lightning, it pretty much uh, covers every use case that he's been 
clamoring about for years. Uh, Lightning, you know, this is another, this is like, this increases the gravitational pull of the Bitcoin black hole. So before we get to Bitcoin's gravitational black hole, let's talk about the lessons we learned specifically with ChangeShip. Because ChangeShip was, uh, because I think it's important to go in this order to realize like the lessons that we learned. And again, a lot of people were too early and we're now realizing throughout time that the use cases that you guys were building back then are possible, just need a little bit more infrastructure. Right. You know, I, I was kind of in a unique, in a unique position being the first product manager at blockchain and uh, product manager at ChangeTip, where we explored these early use cases like merchant adoption, micropayments over social media. And, and then I have a, I think to, to add to that perspective, I left and I didn't leave because I, I, I was still very much in love with Bitcoin. It was just that there was nothing to do in the cold crypto winter. The last one, there was a really tiny space. It was, it was brutal. It was like, and still to this day, I would say like, please do not quit your jobs for crypto. But like back then, and people, <laughs> yeah. people weren't even thinking about it like this. Some people did, but not very many like you, uh, it was definitely a hobby or a passion project. Yeah, it I mean, still is to this day for me. Yeah, I mean, Coinbase probably didn't even have 100 employees back then. Mm-hmm. So, you know, to find a job in the space in the winter was impossible. Yeah. And you weren't going to learn. You know, like, A players, they look for learning opportunities with every job they get. And if you stuck around the last cold crypto winter, you didn't really learn anything. You just survived. Hey, you, didn't, you didn't mature. You didn't build products that, like, you know, you weren't at Uber going from 10,000 users to 10 million. You weren't, like, iterating and launching in new countries. You were just sitting and waiting. Let's talk about that, Uber. So yeah. What did you learn there? Because I, I actually believe I was one of the first 10,000 uh, users. I oh, nice. I was in Chicago when Uber first came out, which was one of the first three cities, I believe, correct? Well, maybe uh, maybe one of my buddies can look you up, see yeah. what, what your UUID is. Yeah, I remember <laughs> coming back one fall for like Thanksgiving. I was like telling people about Uber. They're like, what are you talking about? Like, It's an app. Where this you can like literally call a car like a cab it'll come pick you up and they thought i was like the bougiest motherfucker in the world They're like oh look at you i'm like just wait well back then it was black cars right? so yeah, yeah you looked really bougie yeah yeah um you know it was a really good fit for a bitcoiner or like a crypto person mm-hmm. because it was very libertarian very meritocracy focused um you were in the cultural values encouraged toe stepping on your superior on your superiors which is an incredible sort of culture to have mm-hmm. where everything was about data. And if you had the data and you had a rational argument, if your boss said no, you should go around them. And that was really empowering that, you know, I think, I think everyone is very professional. Like I don't, I don't consider, there was never a moment where people were yelling or any sort of, I would say no one was an asshole, mm-hmm. but people were very forward. It was just no bullshit. No bullshit. Uh, environment. Let's fucking get it done. Yeah. Like, let's get it done. Let's not ask for permission. Let's beg for forgiveness. We're here to conquer the world, which they did. And that was, you know, I mean, Uber was illegal in every single city it went into. Mm-hmm. I remember so, Philly was a strong from Philly. Philly was a stronghold out for a while until like two years ago, I think. But capitalism wins. Right. And, and Uber was a cool culture where it was kind of this really exciting world where we're like, we can, we can build anything that consumers want. Like rules later in life, I've, I've learned that there are no rules. That's the rule. Right. That's, I think that's one of the most liberating moments in my life. I don't know when it was, I can't tell you when it was, but once you realize that the people that you think are running the world, actually most of them have no idea what they're doing is, 
Actually, I do remember what it was. I don't remember the day, but I remember I was working at this managed futures fund, and we were a fund of funds, so we were an index of hedge funds, just layers of fees. Uh, would not recommend uh, a fund of funds if you're looking to save on fees. But the benefit of the job was I got to meet with crazy, successful, and I would say smart uh, traders and hedge funders. But at the end of the day, I realized, holy shit, you're just a normal person. You're sort of, you're winging it to a certain extent. Like, what's to stop me from, from being in your position in 20, 30 years? Totally. Everyone wings it. And I, I think... Uber was really cool in terms of, and to kind of tie it back to Bitcoin here, because we could go off on a tangent for a while. Oh, we can do this. We can do this all night. Tell us the crypt. How many beers do we have in the fridge? Uh, at least thirty. So I could take down. I could take down half a case if you got the other one. So speaking of which, you keep going. We're all right, grab cool. A couple more. Yeah, and what was really cool about being at Uber was, I, you know, I had always worked on products that were, you know, from ten thousand users to maybe a million. And at Uber, I had exposure to products that were, you know, 100 million monthly active users. And these users were in every country in the world. And in terms of our product breadth, in terms of like coverage, like geo coverage, there's not many products like it. I mean, Facebook's not in China, I, I believe, right? Or is it Google? Is it Google or Facebook? I, for, I forget. No, I think it's Facebook. Facebook's firewall and Google is, uh, is making it so... Uh the Chinese government will be happy with the Chinese Google. Uber was in China. We even took on China. Like we were everywhere. And to see the brilliant people that helped scale this product and then opening it up different product lines like Uber Eats, Uber Driver, uh, you know, Uber Rider is what we call the Rider app, the app that we all use. It was incredible to see best in class product people, marketing, PR, and and yeah, you know, coming back to crypto, it, <laughs> you know, there were, look, I, we, we didn't know what the hell we were doing back in the day. Um, we were trying our best and we made some good shots at it, but later on seeing like the scaling problems at, like the scaling problems for Uber, where we tweaked one component of our incentive model for drivers and it destabilized the entire system. What do you mean? So I can't go into too in, too much into depth on mm -hmm. it, but we tweaked one variable which incentivized the drivers in a certain way. And so we always need to balance riders and drivers on a block-by-block -block basis all over the world. Because of this, it, it hurt the supply side, it hurt the driver side because the drivers were responding to an incentive that we had misaligned. Okay. And so that, that, that effect destabilized the supply side, which then made rider ETAs higher Okay. Which then had a ripple effect, right? Because then you lose market share. Mm -hmm. So I just seeing the complexities and the intricacies of operating a hundred million monthly active user products, you learn that the amount of data driven decision making you need to make is you need to make is huge, and the people working on it are brilliant, and we controlled every variable, and even with that, we still made mistake. We still make mistakes. That's so a little butterfly effect there. We don't even understand right where it's coming from. It's like ah. You, yeah, you figure it out probably, you know, everyone's monitoring their own KPIs and all of a sudden you've got like two data scientists going, whoa, this, uh, <laughs> I'm seeing some really fucked metrics here, uh, what's going on? And so, you know, being in those war rooms as well to debug critical issues and I was in the war room for the the uh, writer app rebrand or the redesign where they reskinned the entire app. Mm -hmm. Not reskinned, they actually rebuilt it from the ground up. You know, being in the war room with the executive leadership team 
and uh, like Ed Baker, the head of growth, you know, seeing how those people operated and seeing how we thought through problems. When it came back to crypto, it, it seemed hilarious. Just, just the immaturity of the space was ridiculous. Yeah. What, uh, so how would you contrast that? Like with, I don't want to say, ch- I'm not going to pick on change it, but, uh, let's think of the companies that came, came and went, uh, the first, the last bubble. Um, well, to, to dig in on that a little, let's talk about use cases. Mm-hmm. You know, why would a consumer use something that's slower, harder to use, and more expensive to pay for something online? It makes no sense. Right. It It's silly. It ignores basic product thinking, which is like be customer obsessed and build something that someone wants. I am the biggest proponent of decentralized tech. I want to decentralize all the things, use VPNs, etc., but I'm not buying alpaca socks online. And if I'm not convinced, I shouldn't spend my Bitcoin because I'm ideology, like because it's part of my ideology, I should spend it because it's providing me utility as a consumer, like it's faster, cheaper, easier to use. Right. And that's where I realized all the payment ideology was ridiculous, like for merchant adoption. Um, same with micropayments, I mean, it was fun. I really like the change tip team and I'm still good friends with Nick. I like change tip. I'm, I'm actually curious to see if I ever cleared out my change tip account. You should email Nick. Uh, you can still, you can, yeah, you might have like a 0.1 Bitcoin or something in there. That would be dope. I'm pretty sure. I, I'm pretty sure I did, but just in case I'll email Nick. I did that the other day. I went through all my old exchange accounts and found like all my little scraps. <laughs> I've got, can I say, I can say this. Yeah. I've got old laptops with like old electrum wallets from years ago and I always like once a year I'll just be like maybe I forgot some Bitcoin <laughs> so I'll go check them out when my parents moved I could have sworn I left a hard drive when I moved from Dallas to to SF in, in, the, in my old room there and so I went <laughs> found the hard drive I, I didn't have the power cord for it it was an external hard drive so I had to like buy a new power cord and I'm like oh wallet dat file I'm like oh my god <laughs> <laughs> Could this be the moment, you know, that uh, that you read about, right? Um, and at one point, it held a nice amount, but there weren't any, weren't that's, any in there. No, that's what I'm actually interested to see. Is in the future there will be a like huge garbage server, garbage pile, treasure hunts looking for uh, looking for wallet dot dat files on, on old old servers. You know, I've often wondered too with old Bitcoin companies. A lot of them, most people didn't redeem their money when they went when they were shut down. Like a random service, right? <clears throat> Maybe like a Dogecoin tipping bot. Yeah. What do you do with that money as the as the founder? As the arbiter. Yeah. Probably no just, one... just wait fifteen years and, and sneak away into the into the darkness. <laughs> and just kind of fade away. <laughs> I guess. I don't know what else to do with it. You can't give it to the state. That's what you're supposed to do, but there's no method for the state to collect crypto. In Ohio, there is now, right? Well, it's got to be unc- the the unclaimed assets office. Okay. So while Ohio as a state is accepting Bitcoin for tax payments, I'm not sure if, if like their unclaimed office. The unclaimed state assets. doesn't have a place on the balance sheet for it. Yeah, I, I don't think they've got like a you know custodial solution hooked up. So yeah. I'm not I'm not sure what would happen. Well. Hopefully with better UX, a better product mindset, we can get there. And I think you were uh, getting to the point before I interrupted you that, that are we better off now than we were during change ships days from a, from a product standpoint? I'd argue we haven't really progressed much. Okay. Private key management is still terrible. Mm-hmm. Um, user experience around a transaction. Like, okay, I sent it. What happened? 
Mm-hmm. And, there, and there's, and uh, you know, I'd, I'd like to highlight that. Um, really like the guys over at IDEO, uh, guys and, and gals like Tara Tan and Dan, Dan Elitzer. Yeah. yeah, Dan's. Meet Dan. I've, I've, I've tried to get him on this podcast. He's out in San Fran, right? Yeah, he's out, he's out there. He's, Dan's a great guy. Um, really sharp. They bring, they've always been kind of like, you know, been bringing that championing the, uh, for, you know, design first mindset, which I really, really like. Mm-hmm. And then I'm, you know, friends with Connie Yang over at, over at Facebook. She's head of design, or sorry. Uh, she was formerly at Facebook. Now she's head of design at Coinbase. Okay. But, you know, we had a uh, working session. Um, it was, it was us and a few other designers in this space. I'd like to caveat, they're the experts. I'm not a designer, but I'd like jamming about user experience, jamming on user experience problems. Right. So, uh, we talked about state change for on chain transactions. Like even that is a little bit anxiety provoking. Like one, you're double checking that you put the right address in mm-hmm. Two, you know, you like, if you're a newbie and you press send and it's like unconfirmed, you're like, fuck, is it, <laughs> right. does that mean it's gone? I, I don't know. What does it, what does that mean? You know? And, and then like, has it been propagated to in the network? Has it, it's sent, sent where, um, one confirmation, what does that mean? Right. And so the really basic stuff like private key management, transaction visualization, well, we, we're still lacking just kind of like basic UX. What is the um, the UX principles that are written in the 90s? Um, there's like 10 bullet points, but they're very like... Is this Dieter Rams? No. The simplistic design principles? I think Dieter Rams uh, riffs off of this, but it's like a, a, a standard... Forget what it's called. It begins with an M. I'm pretty sure. Is it? Uh, I forget. But whatever. In the '90s, uh, basically, uh, as they were building out web browsers and the internet, people realized a problem uh, similar to the one that we're bringing up now that Bitcoin has, is that there really wasn't any like concise heuristics for which to create a user experience online, which is pleasurable or pleasant and natural. More importantly, ergonomic to an extent. Um, so they created these standards like, hey, if you're going to make a website and you're going to have calls to action or asking your user to do something, make sure this, this, and this is obvious and this is placed here and blah, blah, blah. And here's like a, a bunch of heuristics to follow, which will make sure that your website has a somewhat at least uh, a stable user experience where the user knows what they're doing. I would argue with block explorers, wallets, uh, exchanges, they may need uh, this type of heuristic guideline. Uh, going forward to say, hey, if you're going to be a block explorer, if you're going to be a wallet or an exchange and your users are going to interact with your product in this way, maybe you should have these pointers like, hey, you just did this. Here's what's happening now or something like that. Yeah, and I think maybe like a a neutral third party like IDEO would be Mm -hmm. a really cool spot for them to kind of like champion some of these standards. Um, Yeah, you know, or like how do you show denomination or how do you talk about like sub one Bitcoin basic principles around well yeah you know do i can't buy a whole bitcoin well you can buy part of one right you know there's a little bit of an educational role as well design can fill an educational gap and i was actually doing this uh not via design but via tutorials hodl hodl i just interviewed uh max and roman two co-founders from there unfortunately as u.s citizens we cannot use their service but uh we can go on their website and and look at what it would be like if we could use it one thing they're doing very very well is their tutorial videos. They had the mindset like, "Hey, we feel a grave amount of responsibility like facilitating this this exchange, which is very arduous for the end user to an extent at this point. So we want to make sure we're at least attempting to educate them 
on what they're doing. So here's how you create a wallet. Here's how you send an, uh, a transaction. Here's how you create a multi-sig wallet. Uh, and everything you can think of from like using and sending Bitcoin, they've got it covered. And then Cash App, similarly with their What is Bitcoin book, was very child. It was like a children's book, but I think it did a very good job of getting the message across of what Bitcoin is. Uh, and we need more of that, like onboarding. Like I will say, Coinbase in particular rubbed me the wrong way with the recent like uh, Ethereum like push via the email, like the Ethereum uh, shill via email, basically telling people to buy Ethereum before educating them on exactly what it is at a high level. Yeah, and you know, I'd like to highlight that Coinbase played a really important role in this space early on. Oh, yes. And then I'll dig into kind of the more recent stuff. And so really like what they've done over the years. Um, I do believe that the, there is a little bit of a lack of education. Um, and I, I think I tweeted about this just to get people's opinion on it. And people were kind of split. Some people believed exchanges shouldn't have to educate users at all. I'm personally on the side of that you should educate them minimally. Mm-hmm. Um for example, like if I go to Coinbase and I'm looking at Bitcoin, Bitcoin Cash, Ethereum, and Ethereum Classic, look, most users are going to want to buy Bitcoin and Ethereum. They don't want to buy the forks. But when you list the assets next to each other and they look almost identical and one's cheaper, that's going to lead to some weird decision making. And I, I think, you know, if you want an E-Trade and you sell Apple and Apple Cash, mm-hmm. right. <laughs> that, that would be a serious issue. And... And so I think we'll see the exchanges over time, you know, kind of be more user centric and design interfaces that are more geared around intuitively what they want. Um, and so, you know, I, I know at big companies, it takes time to restructure websites and design to, to be modified for that. But I do believe they should play a minimally, a minimal education role, a minimal role in education based on the the desires of their users, which is probably to buy just Bitcoin and just Ethereum. Yeah. No, and I, like you said, we wouldn't probably would not be sitting here talking right now if Coinbase didn't exist. They, what they did in 2012 and 2000, 2015, I would argue, was invaluable to the space and got it to where it is today. But with that being said, I feel uh the last few years in particular they sort of spread themselves thin i would argue um caught onto a lot of hype and i think they're also pathfinding for revenue yeah which is makes sense for a company they lived through one winter i think they're looking at expanding the number of crypto assets available mm-hmm. simply put because a lot of that that value is being captured by binance and the other exchanges yeah so it's kind of inevitable that they went down that route inevitable but they might be shit out of luck because they're they're handcuffed to the u.s regulations whereas like a binance or somebody else is not um so it'll be interesting to see how they try to compete and maybe uh which people are trying to uh to assume with their new stable coin is that they're (laughs) trying to create a framework from which to go after tether or something like that yeah i think they're just examining all pathways at the the moment kind of chasing down everything and, and going for it fun fact i actually worked with cz at blockchain Really? Yeah, he uh, he was only there for a few months, and then he went on to OKCoin. He was more of a trader type, you know. Obviously, he created Binance. So eccentric. He was cool. He was very, very sharp. Yeah. Um. Very, you know, markets focused. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, I think just that blockchain, it wasn't like 
it didn't make a lot of sense. Yeah. Blockchain was more, mainly about the wallet product and the block explorer. Mm-hmm. And so I think he was more excited about OKCoin. Um, but yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's kind of funny to see how the space has developed. Some, some of the early people, some, some left forever and I haven't heard anything from them. Some went on to be CZ to go work at Binance. Um, you know, it, it, it truly, the space truly developed in no way I thought was, was actually going to like develop it. What do you mean by that? Like the explosion of ICOs. Like that was crazy because we already had the 2014 altcoin bubble. Right. And so I thought, you know, okay, well people would look back on that and go, well, you know, by the way, I mined prime coin just to <laughs> let everyone know. I am a, I, I do love Bitcoin. I'm a Bitcoiner. But I did mine Prime Coin. Oh, I was staking shit coins in twenty fifteen. <laughs> <laughs> I was full. I was a full blown shit coiner in like 2014, 2015. I liked the back in that day. I thought the idea of useful mining, which proof of work is already very useful, mm-hmm. but for some reason I thought finding prime numbers made it more usefully. <laughs> Just use, yeah, use became even better. Um, like, at what point does Prime Coin become like a possible? Like, a, do, do we know? It's still r- still running. I think. Yeah. I don't know what the market cap is. Does it always have? Does the? I'm not sure how the mining. Do you have to fly a, a higher Prime every time, or? I guess. I yeah. think. Yeah, I think it's just a bigger Prime. Yeah. Which I'm not sure. I don't know how the difficulty adjustment works with that. But uh, anyways, yeah, I actually mined mined a whole block of Prime Coin. There we go. Which is kind of fun, but yeah, you know, it was. I've gone through, you know, after going through that bubble, I was like, certainly we've all learned our lesson, but no, <laughs> no, not, not at all. <laughs> a, a whole new wave that would be massive, much bigger than I could possibly imagine happened. Uh, that I, was wild. I love talking about uh, the mania of last year and the fact that I worked at Barstool Sports as it was going on and being in that zoo of an office is every like everybody in the office was fascinated with everybody's buying tron every shit coin you could think of wait was that your video someone had a video of an office where everyone was buying shit coins oh yes i mean it wasn't my it was a video of barstool i did not yeah i was there but i did not uh i did not record the video or okay. post it, it was you know the video i'm talking about though yeah. right where oh, the, yeah. he's walking around the camera and everyone's like on coinbase yeah. <laughs> get but, in right now yeah or like poloniex <laughs> well, that's how crazy it got like yeah the volume was so heavy that exchanges weren't even working for that like for a good couple of weeks it was like questionable whether or not you're gonna be able to get a trade through I mean, I, I left Uber in November 2017 to start picks and shovels, but November was still very hot in the space, and, and I'd walk around the open desk sort of environment that we had. You know, we'd have 500 employees on a floor with with no walls, <laughs> and a good 5% or 10% of the, of the um, you know, the laptops were, were opened up to Coinbase. <laughs> right? <laughs> or some sort of chart website. And it was like, so I got in the bar stool and I was basically trying to be like, all right, I was trying to be the voice of reason. Like I was like, all right, these guys are not going to like listen to me if I tell them not to buy anything. So I was like, just buy Bitcoin and only buy a little bit at a time. Like if you have to, like it's probably not a good time to buy, but of course they all went for Tron and, and every other. Well, yeah, it's a better, coin you can think it's of. a better Bitcoin because it's faster. It's faster. <laughs> Jimmy's, they got a lot of, uh, a lot of partnerships, a lot of partnerships announcement coming up for Tron in particular. And branding, Tron just sounds cool, right? I mean, come on, come on, Bitcoin. It sounds old. I had B- some, Bitcoin's the MySpace. I had some Tron sh- is Tron is like Facebook 
I had some I had some shill hop into my menchies today, uh, shilling a coin, and the coin's name was Nexty, and I was like, "That's like the laziest. You're just gonna like <laughs> your coin's just gonna be next, and you expect people to be like, oh, next. Uh, it's the next Bitcoin." Um, I think by this point we've tried every possible brand name for a coin. I mean, how many thousands of ICOs were created? Like at least ten thousand. Mm-hmm. At least we're running out of cash tags. Yeah, or or exchange tickers. Yeah, yeah. There's gonna have to be a Ooh, to to kind of dig in on that. There's something that I've been thinking about writing about, which is the 51 percent attacks on proof of work coins, given that their market caps drop below a certain certain level. That will cost exchanges a lot of money, and so I think we'll see a lot of exchange D listings where they're going to go, you know, uh, Bittrex lost $600,000 with the Bitcoin gold 51% attack. So what happens when like, you know, a semi big chain, like maybe in the top 10 gets low enough? Well, Slushpool decided to reorg BCH, ABC, BCH, SV right now. They could. Like, right. It's very centralized. Right. And that's where I'm actually waiting. Like I want, I want these bigger pools of hashing power to attack these weaker chains. I want, I'm waiting to see it. Uh, a lot of people are like, oh, it's not ethical, but it's like, eh, it's possible, and I want to see it in the wild. But it would. That's what I'm actually interested to see, is like, would uh, an attack of a chain like that, like, would it be such a burden on the infrastructure, the exchange infrastructure in particular, that it would set the space back for uh, for a considerable amount of time? Because if, imagine if there was like a 100-block reorg. yeah. Uh, that would be that would be a lot of money for for an exchange. It could be the end yeah. of an exchange if there are fifty one percent attacks that happen and the the amount was large, mm-hmm. a very large amount. And that's where I don't see anyone talking about this. And I'm like, well, that's why proof of work exists, and that's why it's best if it accumulates on one chain because yeah. then that provides security. Well, um, and and yeah, so I I think we're going to see a lot of that happen as these market caps market caps drift lower. Well, I think this is a perfect segue into sort of your your magnum opus of this fall, which is your series uh, planning Bitcoin, and you get heavy into POW and uh, the environment in which Bitcoin was launched. And we were uh, chatting about that a little bit before, and I had to stop you because I wanted to make sure we got it all recorded uh, and 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 sort of the phases that Bitcoin has gone through and its species, what it is, and it, it, describing it as a living organism that we are sort of taking care of. So I guess I don't want to repeat too much of what you said on Peter's podcast, but give us a gist of why you did it, why you decided to write it, and, and it, uh, you you and Jill were spitballing. Uh, <laughs> she was she was the uh, inspiration for it. and Yeah, well, you know, I got to give props to Jill. I, I'm not a writer, and... And so she kind of incepted this idea on the way back from Tahoe. It was Hermie and Meltem, uh driving back from Tahoe earlier in uh, this year. And, and she, you know, her and I are in the front seat. I forget what, what Meltem's doing. Probably sending emails. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and Jill and I, uh, we're, we both really like ambient techno, by the way. It's a, it's kind of a, that's what I score. Oh, this is, yeah, this is another uh, very important part of your four-part series is that you have music to go along with each, uh, each part. That's right. That's right. I, I had to score each part of it because I felt like music added more emotion to the narrative. It which does. Was, which it was does. fun. I, you know, I think I looked at the SoundCloud stat- statistics and um, 
I think like a, I think like ten, I think like ten percent of people played it, ten to twenty percent. So I'm I'm happy with that. It uh, I did it for myself, but it looks sounds like other people enjoyed the music as well. Um, it's, uh, I'm a big big on vibe setting. Hence, we have the music on here. You freaks can't hear. It's down low, low. Uh, we got a Christmas tree in here too. It's Christ- it's very Christmassy. Smelling smelling like pine tree in here. Um, no, but I think that uh, reading reading your pieces with that that transient music in the back is it's reminding me of a uh, Michael Goldstein's "Everyone's a Scammer" because he makes you listen to like old Western music while, while you read through that. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've read that article. Yeah, it's uh, season uh, season part two was my favorite one to score mm-hmm. uh, because it. It was the 2008 financial crisis timeline, and I wanted to set how ominous the tone was, how this was this was the death and destruction of everything we knew, and I, I think a lot of people forget that because it's been 10 years. You know, it's been a long time, and so people forget how anxiety provoking and, and fearful everyone was, and that 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 was the moment when that when Bitcoin seed was planted was in that moment of absolute despair. And, uh, and yeah, this is, we can dig in on this a little bit this season because that's, that's what we were talking about right before we started recording. Um, you know, certainly Satoshi didn't choose the decade in which he had planned, in which he planted Bitcoin. It's unlikely he chose the year. He was coding it up, quote, like uh, he said, I was quote, coding it up uh, since 2006. So late 2006, early 2007, uh, approximately like two, approximately like two years or a year and a half before. Um, so I'd say the year probably wasn't super purposeful, like that wasn't intentional. Mm-hmm. But the month and the day certainly were intentional. There's no way you can say that he just shitted out on October 31st for for shits and giggles. Like no, he purposely chose sub- Halloween. He chose Halloween. And so this isn't included, this is not included in planting Bitcoin, but I'll cover it today on the podcast. Uh, and it will be included in the uh, planting Bitcoin book coming out in January. January, right? Yep. That's right. And I believe, you know, Satoshi was a polymath. Uh, his deep, and I use the, by the way, I'm from San Francisco, so I got I to gotta clarify this. He uses the pronoun he. I use the pronoun he because that's what Satoshi chose on his peer-to-peer foundation profile. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm respecting Satoshi's gender choice. Yes. So just for clarification here. Um, <laughs> you got to do that these days. You know, you never know. Hey. We are in Williamsburg. You, could get, you get attacked if you, if you walk out of here and don't clarify that. I just want to be up front. So, <laughs> you know, uh, you know he, he definitely understood physics, cryptography, economics, um, and financial history or the origins of money, kind of the same thing. And so like, how does value get, get transmitted through different mediums through time? And so Satoshi definitely understood this because he's familiar with the term unforgeable costliness, which is what Nick Zabo came up with, which refers to gold mining, how there is no free lunch to dig the gold out. The, the cost is equivalent to the revenue. Mm-hmm. And, and I think, you know, Satoshi definitely had a, he was at least someone who enjoyed reading about history. And, and by the way, I'm extrapolating a little bit here, but let's go with it. Um, I'm full on this wavelength. <laughs> right I'm, I'm, I'm stepping out on a limb here a little bit. However, I think I have a decently logical basis for, for how I've, I've stitched this narrative together. Um, so 
the origins of Halloween are with Samhain, which is a Celtic festival. Mm-hmm. And it was, you know, there's, it, it kind of, you know, the TLDR of what the, like the, the, the summary of what that festival is about was the end of cycles, the end of seasons. And I think that's why Satoshi waited for October 31st. Interesting. Was that this marked the end of an era, the end of central banks mm-hmm. and the birth of Bitcoin, but only birth through the death of the previous one. And so I think that's why he waited till October 31st. This is a very, uh, very convincing narrative you have here. Well, if we had music, it would be even more convincing. Right? <laughs> uh, do you think he was that prescient? I mean, obviously, he, well, he was prescient about a lot of things, so it wouldn't surprise me the least bit that he was prescient about this, uh, making very very pointed, poignant statements with actions uh, over words. Yeah, I mean, he was incredibly mature to be anonymous, uh, to, to prove the distribution was fair, which we can cover that. I, I wrote an article on that. Um to critically remove all, you know, external out, external input as much as possible. For example, like choosing an inflation rate. Mm-hmm. Um, Bitcoin is disinflationary. It has a 21 million hard cap. And he did that because you don't have to rely on a trusted third party to tell you what the inflation rate should be. Um, so all of those things together and the difficulty adjustment, I mean, these were brilliant, really forward thinking. And so for him just to not spend any time on, on submitting Bitcoin, like not to think about the exact day or the the year, mm-hmm. or sorry, the day or the month. I, I find that difficult, especially because he registered Bitcoin.org in August 2008. Right. So he was preparing. Why, did he la- why didn't he launch it in September? I don't know, but he certainly was preparing and had waited. And if you look at the, the queries for financial crisis on Google search trends, it peaks in October 2008. Really? So he waited for the peak moment of despair, which was coincidental, but also purposeful. You can't say that he just did it accidentally. I think that he waited and he was like, it's not going to get any better than this moment. Let's do it now. What if Bitcoin's successful in the long run? And we just have this rando Anon guy give us like the most perfect money in the world. Well, Satoshi's... He, he's Is seven... he an alien? Is he God? <laughs> He set himself up as a, a hero mm-hmm. because he sacrificed his horde. Right. Which was, a Prome- as Nick Carter says, a Prometheus sort of moment. Mm-hmm. Um, in a, a quasi, like, if you want to use Jesus as an analogy as well, like the sacrificial lamb. Yeah. Which I think, and this is where I believe that he did read deeply into, like, cultures and religion and, and history because he seems to understand what the what constitutes a hero. Like, all of his replies on Bitcoin... Bitcoin talk and and the uh, cryptography email threads were very, very calm, especially since people were berating him. Mm-hmm. They were like, this doesn't make any sense. You know, yeah. I think he was very calm, very, very open um, to any use case. He's like, you know, this is a socially scalable protocol, so you can do whatever you want with it. He was cognizant that he didn't want his tree, you know, after being planted to get crushed by a storm, you know, so he was, he was a little worried about WikiLeaks. Mm-hmm. You know, he goes, we've kicked the hornet's nest and now they're coming after, like after us. And he was emailing Julian Assange directly, right? Like it's not, or was he emailing him directly or just say on the forum, like it's not a good time, please don't uh, blow us up. 
I think it was on the forum. That's all I've read. Maybe he did email Assange directly yeah. too. But you know, as a good gardener, gardener, he was very focused on making sure that he protected his 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 tree, the the Bitcoin tree, and protected it in a way to where it would survive. Yeah, and he had a very uh, until he left a very servant leader type mentality, where he was obviously down in the trenches doing everything and trying to lead by example. Um, yeah, very much so. I mean, I. It would, you would be hard pressed to find an individual, given, also given that Bitcoin had no value for a year and a half, mm-hmm. right? I mean, this was an experiment. This wasn't. We look back on it and we're like, oh, of course, of course, it was going to be successful, but that wasn't very obvious at all. I mean, this was mainly a bunch of cypherpunks tinkering away at it. Like this wasn't a community, really. It was a bunch of people who really loved cryptography. Yeah, and not long after that year and a half, he was gone. So you saw, yeah. hey. It's running. It's up and running, and I'm out of here. Right, and the fact that he hasn't moved his coins, the fact that he was very open and 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 he had a very fair launch. I mean, he wrote the white paper October 31st, 2000, or published the white paper October 31st, 2008, and then uh, January 3rd or, or 9th, I forget the exact date. He uh, January 30 mined the Genesis block, right, and then yes, okay, yeah. The yeah, first block was mined January 9th or something like that. Yeah, Genesis block was created before the first like publicly minted block. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where Genesis block included the the, fa- the infamous... Chancellor on the brink of the second bailouts at the bank. Yeah, not for Visa on the verge of raising processing fees. <laughs> yeah, it just it, it, it stitched together the narrative that Satoshi built this all for like cheaper payments is ridiculous i mean you look at the genetic code of bitcoin how it was constructed you look at the traits that that develop from that genetic code you look at the season which he planted it you look at all of his comments talking about the root of all problems start with central banks (laughs) you get the message in the first block you've got his super libertarian ideology his reference to bitcoin being a precious metal literally He's like, this is similar to a precious metal. Mm-hmm. The idea that supply remains um, the production or the the uh, minting of supply happens in a constant form, which he knows, and he's publicly stated, demand will fluctuate, and it will be, it you know essentially creates bubbles, and and it's a sort of feedback loop where the the value increases. The more people are brought in, the more developers are brought in, and there's more hash rate. Yeah. So he he constructed it to be the perfect pump. Well, uh, yeah, it's designed to pump forever, and that incentive system is something that fascinates me. Is it the best incentive system we've ever seen? And it's really primitive. It's beautiful. Right. It's beautiful in the simplicity. Right. It feeds off the greed, which is like fucked up. It's not fucked up to say. It's just like the way humans work. It's just the way humans work. There's nothing wrong or right about it. It's just who we are. Right. But it is such a perfect incentive system. Like we're we're experiencing this. So right now we're uh, bit devs. Last night we just had a seven percent difficulty downward difficulty adjustment. Our last uh, last week or two weeks ago, next one's expected to be eleven percent. So we're going to keep dropping difficulty. But that is why the difficulty adjustment exists, right? To keep that feedback loop going. As soon as that difficulty gets lower, it's going to become more profitable for miners. They're going to turn them on and start start confirming transactions on the network like it is almost impossible to kill via uh unless you're doing it via force i don't think you can kill it with apathy at the market at this point 
It's an incredibly robust system, given the very primitive nature of the incentive model, which I'd like to highlight a quote from Charlie Munger, in which he goes, you know, Charlie Munger's old. Mm-hmm. I think he's in his 90s. Yeah. Maybe, maybe 80s. I, I forget, but he's very old. I think he might be in his 90s. And Charlie Munger goes, he goes, you know, I'm, I'm in the top 5% of my age cohort who, I'm in the top 5% of that cohort that un, who understands incentives. However, I continually underestimate how strongly humans respond to incentives. And that's what was so brilliant about Bitcoin is it assumes people are going to want to make money, which is a great assumption to make because they do. People love money. And when the fact that we have the opportunity to remake money, not only make money in a sense of like getting paid for your work, but like fucking remake the concept of money and how humans interact with it is just like uh, a thought that blows my, that's why I'm still here. It's like blows my mind every day. The, the thought that we may be in the process of creating a new money. If we want to get really meta with it, let's go, let's go there. Yeah, we, we should, we should. So, you know, really Bitcoin is the most efficient thermodynamic money that has ever been created. Why do you say this? Well, so proof of work inherently is about, is about transmuting electricity into digital gold. It's a one way function. Mm -hmm. Um, and that bridges the physical to digital world. It's the first time we've had a tie from the physical digital world in a provable way. 100% 100% provable. Um, in addition, you know, thermodynamics isn't just about energy, which, you know, you have some of the basic principles where they're like energy cannot be created or destroyed. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Bitcoin, Bitcoin efficiently harnesses that electricity to use it to build digital walls around the network to protect it. Mm-hmm. Or some people use the analogy of amber. I think that was uh, Andreas mm-hmm. who used that analogy, which is really good. Yeah, I like I like I like sharing the, uh, the Jurassic Park picture of the mosquito. And the <laughs> like, this is what your UTXO yep. is. That's right, and it's these like ther- you know it's converting energy to thermodynamically protect or reduce entropy in the ledger to where there's no one can change the ledger entry unless they control that private key, and then these layers of amber or energy layers have been la- laid on top of that to permanently compress and kind of keep those the UTXO set from changing right. unless people choose to. Um, and, you know, in parallel, there's something called information theory, which is what all computer science is based off of. Nice, nice. Pointing the knowledge and power right now. Information theory is very similar to thermodyna- thermodynamics, which is in, you know, a couple different thoughts on that. You know, like one is information cannot be created or destroyed. Same sort of, same sort of, uh, train of thought with thermodynamics and part of part of what really got me excited about bitcoin recently was reading i think it's george gilder's uh information money mm-hmm. which so I'm, I'm sure a lot of people here are familiar with efficient market hypothesis which is that all information is reflected in the price of something so a stock so for example there's different forms of efficient market hypothesis which is that all public knowledge has been factored into the price of Apple. Mm-hmm. And then there's the stronger form of that, which is that all inside, insider and outsider information, so all inside information, all public information have been factored into the price. And Bitcoin is really interesting from an information perspective because the monetary policy is perfectly transparent mm-hmm. and all actions, all financial transactions currently, now this may not be in the future when we have lightning and stuff like that, 
but lightning still needs to settle on chain so that eventually becomes transparent so what i'm trying to say is that because we can now see everyone else's actions in the market it is the most information efficient market ever created to where all information has been factored into the price <laughs> which is to, which is to say that the price of bitcoin is the compressed data of the entire market <sighs> blow my mind here dan the compressed data of the entire market is it fair to say that's sort of like a confidence interval too or so here's the way to think about confidence it. interval confidence index or something like that so let, let's go to hyper bitcoinization mm -hmm. bitcoin is worth actually i <laughs> i think bitcoin will be worth one quadrillion dollars in today's in today's dollars post hyper inflationary uh event or pre-hyperinflationary well uh because there's not a static you can't you can't move 250 trillion dollars worth of assets or store of value assets into this new asset class without moving the price up as you buy in. Right. Um, if you moved it in a perfect perfect function, it would just easily transfer. But as Mark, as you buy all the Bitcoins that people are willing to sell, people are inevitably, you're gonna have to buy them at a higher and higher value. Mm -hmm. um, so post-hyper-Bitcoinization, holding Bitcoin turns you into a central bank because you own the world reserve currency and you are the world reserve you are the central bank mm -hmm. in essence and choosing to hodl or not hodl influences the risk-free rate of return which is hodling bitcoin so if you hodl bitcoin you earn the risk-free rate of return it's risk-free technically mm -hmm. and by each entity whether that be like an investment bank or hedge fund or individual who holds bitcoin you either hodl or you lend spend or invest and that dictates the risk-free rate of return. And so in that scenario, the risk-free rate has been perfectly, as perfect as you can, perfectly reflected in the market. So the, the entire world's perspective on what the risk-free rate should be, which is manifested via the HODL or not HODL, that's all market data compressed to the risk-free rate. So that, that's kind of a deeper explanation of that, of that idea. Yeah. No, and it makes a lot of sense because once you have the whole world operating on one one formal currency, you can derive these sort of efficiencies in these rates. And, and it's it's great because then we can all make our purchasing decisions based on the most transparent data we can possibly have. Exactly. And so the market becomes super efficient because everything in that semi-transparent form can, you know, it's all... It's really tough in mainstream markets because we're all inferring our our spending, our investing and spending and and investing. And there's, you know, so, and, there's so many. If you're operating in the global economy in particular, too, there's so many switching costs and taxes and friction to take into consideration too. Right? That uh, sort of distorts the 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 price of everything. Yeah. When you think about central banks, you know what? If you think about a central bank. You can think about it being a an individual in the driver's seat in a car and the economy being the car. But they're receiving old information. So it's like they're driving the car looking through the rearview mirror. <laughs> it's old information, right? It You can't compile market information that quickly. No. Like some is instant, some is daily, some is monthly, some is yearly. And that's, that's, that's why I left finance because... 
I get I realized after a while, I was like, holy shit, these people have no idea what they're doing. They sound like they do, and people believe they do, but they really don't. Like, And I wrote a thread uh, based off a paper that a friend of mine wrote, uh, Parker, uh, Parker Hayes, or excuse me, Parker Lewis. I don't know why I said Parker Hayes. Parker Lewis wrote this paper. He used to work for Kyle Bass, um, and he dove deep into like, Fed policy over the years, like going from like 2005 all the way through 2012, the Fed minutes that were available up, up until that point in time. Actually, it might be 2013 because the Fed minutes become available like four years later. Um, and basically prove that like March 2005, like before uh, real estate like really hit ahead, like in 2006 and 2007, Ben Bernanke was like, I never never like housing markets as healthy as it will be. Then in like 2007 beginning of the year, there was like a 5% S and P correction that had to do with it coincided with like a downturn in the housing market. And Ben Bernanke was like, Oh, this will be contained to $10 billion in losses. And then lo and behold, it led to, I believe $7 trillion that were wiped out of the market in the course of six months. And this is somebody who's supposed to be leading the economy and is trying to say, hey, don't worry. This is only going to be a $10 billion loss, or excuse me, $50 billion loss in the long run. Turns out to be $7 trillion, so he's off by uh, 14 orders of magnitude. You know, really, it's a data problem. And that's where that's where I have a, a, an article coming out of around deflation, mm-hmm. uh, which basically argues, you know, we all know that socialism doesn't work because of the information problem. Because to efficiently allocate capital you need to absorb all local market information. And if there's no incentive model to absorb that market information efficiently, like I'm the local business owner who has a restaurant Mm -hmm. and I choose what's on the menu based on my local diner's preferences, you know, a centralized entity is never going to be able to absorb enough information to adequately develop services and products for that local area. It's a data problem. Keynesianism, Keynesianism, um, you know, uh, what the, essentially the monetary policy that we have is just a modified form of socialism or central planning. That's what, that's what pisses me off is that people like try to bash capitalism, capitalism, capitalism in America today. I'm like, you motherfuckers don't realize we haven't lived in a truly capitalistic economy in a while. This is a, so both capital, both Keynesianism, Keynesianism and, uh, and socialism, they're both based on control Mm -hmm. and one controls a lot more than the other. However, with a Federal Reserve and a Treasury, you still control the base layer of the market. And that's the problem is one, like how do you even how do you even calculate an inflation rate? That that alone as a question is something that is Well, they don't calculate it, they dictate it. Right. Well, you know, it's really difficult. How do you measure? What I meant is more how do you measure inflation? So one would be like, can you measure it accurately, and how do you measure it? Oh, you can't. You can't in this system because they change the underlying variables every other year. They do. Yeah, they change. They change. They they move the uh, the CPI basket around. They'll just change yeah. the underlying variables instead of instead of a. They're moving goalposts. You know, they're moving goalposts yeah. and they're changing what the goalposts look like. And then, okay, so so first, how do you absorb enough information as that centralized entity in order to make decisions for the economy, and and then one, you know, how do you even measure it? <laughs> Two, if you knew how to measure it and you had the right data, which both are impossible, then what do you do? Yeah, like what do you actions? That? Yeah, what levers do you press to control the market? What's an appropriate level of a rate of inflation? I don't know. Is two percent? I mean, two percent sounds nice. It's a nice whole number. But it why not? Nice, and it's a, it's all window dressing though. Like they say, two percent, and all 
like we said, the CPI has changed. Like to say that inflation has been contained over the last decade, when you look at healthcare, housing, and education prices, it's like don't piss in my face and tell me it's raining. Like that's it, it, that's the way I feel with a lot of the the central planning in this country in particular right now. Is it's a lot of right. pissing in everybody's face and telling us it's raining. And the Fed's in the driver's seat, and they're driving the car with with just the rearview mirror, and they don't even have the whole rearview mirror. They're getting little bits and pieces. They don't have the whole picture because they don't have all the information. And then they press the gas or the brake pedal, but there's a 15 second delay. Right. <laughs> and so you, you know, when you think about it that way, you're like, oh, this is crazy. How could you even possibly control a system given your very, very, like very laggy inputs and outputs? And so that's where I argue that Bitcoin is, is very efficient when it comes to inputs and outputs. It's near real time, which means all market participants can base their decisions on the best real-time information that we have. And that's, thank you, Dan. Something I've been trying to point out for a while on this podcast is just Bitcoin, while slow, dumb, and rudimentary to a certain extent, it just provides a certain level of certainty. Like, hey, you know, a block's going to reproduce roughly every 10 minutes. Depending on what block it's at, it's going to give out a block reward of so-and-so. And depending on what demand is for transactions in a block, at any given point in time, the fees to get in are gonna are gonna vary. Yeah, and there's uh do you ever do the follow Fridays where you tag some people that you like to follow? Uh every once in a while, yeah. So I I did a list um a few weeks ago and I had a section that said, you know, I think like these <laughs> like either like these guys take L S D or like <laughs> if you want to get really crazy or weird with it, follow these guys. Just DeSantis, DeSantis, DeSantis. Yeah, basically DeSantis types, right? <laughs> Which by the way, he has me blocked and I don't know why. I don't know what it did, but Andrew, why are you blocking Dan? I don't know, man. Don't know yeah, if he's listening, unblock me, bro. But uh, the crypto ray and a couple other types are like mm-hmm. really meta. You know, essentially, because of relativity, all t- local time is relative. Mm-hmm. You, you could say that Bitcoin's timestamping function is the universal clock, right, of the universe, because it's not based on local time based on block, block time. time yeah it's almost like a metronome too it is that's right it's just there it's constant it's uh and we can't change it uh at least me and you personally and that's what's kind of cool is because of that predictability because bitcoin's monetary policy is predictable because we know we have a 21 million hard cap we now have an accurate way to measure the economy whereas before it was all relative and not measurable now we have our standard unit of account, which is like Kelvin's, like Kelvin, Celsius, meters, centimeters. Now we have Bitcoin. Right. And we'll know Bitcoin's made it when we uh, transition from the Gregorian calendar to block time. We literally <laughs> just base, base time uh, off of the block height or history. Because it'd be hard to predict... Like say, hey, meet me at block height six hundred thousand. <laughs> now that's getting full Bitcoin right there. Right, that's, <laughs> <laughs> that's going all out. <laughs> but, but that is a uh, like it is heady like that. Like uh, speaking of DeSantis, uh, I think he has the best definition for Bitcoin. Uh, Bitcoin, um, when implemented correctly, is uh, a time stamping, uh, time stamping protocol that doubles as a, a value storage service. Totally, yeah. Time stamping, de- distributed or decentralized time stamping is a huge problem. Yeah, Distri- yeah. Important, important prefix 
prefix to that being distributed, distributed time stamping protocol that when implemented correctly uh, results in a store of value. Right. Store of value. Yeah. It, you know, and, and Satoshi references that quite a bit mm-hmm. um, where I think like it's a bit esoteric to like get into it for the layman, but it is pretty fascinating. Yeah, a lot of people, uh, Nick Carter is probably the biggest proponent of this, think we made a big mistake of making blockchain a thing. It should be time chain. <laughs> <laughs> really happy for Nick and everything he's writing in the space. Definitely brings, you know, well, his container ships article was, was, or his container ship slide was really good. Right. Um, but that's actually something I want to get on, riffing off of your interview with Peter on what Bitcoin did. Uh, you're talking about narratives. Like we had the early on narratives, uh, and you mentioned Nick Carter in particular, like he's coming around. Uh, the piece that him and Hasu wrote in particular of the changing narratives throughout time. It just seems like it's getting more as a soft fork with Bitcoin sort of tightens the rules a little bit. It seems like the narrative is getting a little tighter and, and yeah. more concise. And I'm very happy to see this because it is like, what is this? Like, what is the best way to market this to the masses and specifically new people who have never bought or interacted with this? And we have obviously fucked up the narrative in the past and, and, <laughs> and spit out false narratives. So what is the the base layer narrative that will be true and in, into perpetuity well, you know and i want to defend some of the businesses that did promote the merchant adoption narrative mm-hmm. to get vc capital you had to yes um hodling doesn't make you a lot of money no so i i get it i get i get why they did it i don't agree with them attacking the protocol or trying to change it but mm-hmm. i do understand why they made that decision i understand don't incentives they're incentivized yep. incentive yeah, yeah. Per, yeah exactly exactly so you know, what's really cool now, I think I've never been more bullish about the Bitcoin narrative than I have been in 2017, 2018. Like we saw the Nick Carters and Murads and Hasu and Arjun and Vijay. I'm forgetting a lot. And, and Marty, you know, yourself and, and Peter and you guys are. We bring you guys on to spit the narratives <laughs> out there. Hey, well, it helps. It helps. I think people, you know, when you propagate the narrative, you see how the how the rest of the community reacts to it. And then that comes back as a feedback loop. Yeah. Um, but I've never been more bullish on on seeing the narrative get compressed to hopefully, my, my prediction is in the next few years, the narrative will get so compressed that it will be compressed enough that everyone gets it. Right. That's what uh, we actually had fun on Twitter today. I've got uh, Matthew from Crypto Voices. Do you listen to that podcast at all? Uh, I don't. He's uh, he's like a hardcore economist, uh, but he has the voice of an angel or, or of a god. Excuse me, very low, very authoritative voice. So we're gonna record some commercials next week, and we ask the freaks uh, <laughs> to send us like some like one-liner Bitcoin uh, uh, advertisements. We got a couple here. I'll read a couple. Bitcoin and Bitcoin alone is sovereign. Uh, what else have we got here? You don't change Bitcoin. Bitcoin changes you. I'll take credit for that one. Bitcoin, the verse asset that you truly own. Just trying to condense the narrative into a couple uh, cases. I think this might be the best one. Bitcoin, just in case. Yeah, and I, you know, <laughs> I think, <laughs> you know, I think in the early days, I was back in 2014. I was constantly trying to tell people, we don't need to teach people like how the hell Bitcoin works. They don't know how their cell phone works. They don't know how their fridge works. Mm-hmm. We need to tell them why it's important to them, like in layman's terms. So I'm going to interrupt you here and come into the narrative that I've been trying to form. I recognize this too, because I always try to say attack Bitcoin from the tech perspective, where more recently I realized it's impossible, especially for the layman. They're not going to understand nodes, miners, and the the, uh, intersubjective consensus that they meet 
with all the stakeholders. It's a bit complicated. Yes. So riffing off Barstool, Barstool is a blog for the common man by the common man. I, 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 uh, I really think we should start parroting Bitcoin as the currency for the common man because right now the common man, to save his purchasing power throughout time, has to go seek yield in the market instead of being able to throw a couple shekels in a, in a wallet or a bank account. They're forced to chase yield in the stock account, bond market, mutual funds, whatever it may be. They cannot simply park their wealth in an account and expect that it will maintain purchasing power. So the common man, who's already got a tough life of working a grueling nine to five, potentially raising a family, working paycheck to paycheck, has the extra burden of figuring out what investments are going to help him preserve his purchasing powers throughout time. Whereas Bitcoin, it's pretty simple. You, you put a, a percentage of your work, your hard-earned work earnings into Bitcoin and you know that your slice of the pie will never be depreciated. Yeah, that's a good point in, in terms of with the Federal Reserve, they've kind of cattle prodded people into right? riskier and riskier assets. But the common man doesn't understand how to allocate capital effectively. And so you're forced to rely on institutions that allocate your capital for you, which is a bit of seniorage where mm-hmm. you've got like your local broker who's like, trust me, bro. And he just types a couple things into a computer to allocate your capital across stocks and bonds. And he takes 3% for doing it. Right. <laughs> and he didn't do anything. And he has no idea how the markets work and no one really does. Right. They just, if, if I did, I would be a trillionaire. Right. I'd have all the Bitcoins. Um, and so <laughs> not yet. There's still 4 million to come or three and a half. Yeah. Yeah. It's, <laughs> so, you know, I think, I think like narrative is really important and that's why I love Nathaniel Whitmore's thoughts in the space. He's, he's got a really brilliant clear headed perspective on narratives. Yeah. Uh, he, he does PR professionally. So he's really good at like dissecting narratives and spinning narratives and understanding how they influence opinion. His weekly reads tweet threads are awesome. Yep. It's what I look forward to every Sunday. Yeah. If you're, uh, if you're looking to condense your, uh, news consumption in the space down to one hour uh, just wait for sunday afternoons he's got great narrative compression mm-hmm. and you know with that i think um you know the narrative for bitcoin like i think that the common man's money is a good one that's what's great about the space is there is no pr team right so individuals decide what narrative they think is cool they propagate it and they see what the community likes you know it'll they'll either like it or they won't it'll either work with new people or it won't mm-hmm sort of a uh, experimentation platform for narratives because there is no central planning committee. Twitter is a great place to, uh, to uh, field test these narratives. It's a fast feedback loop. You know, right away if people like it or not, which uh, my, my new favorite one that I came up with (laughs) to, to show myself a little bit uh, would be my electricity police. Oh my God. (laughs) I I wanted to touch on this. I'm happy you brought it up. (laughs) Please explain this. You're doing God's work. Yeah, so a lot of people think proof of work is inefficient. And so if you if you believe that or you have doubts about proof of work's utility, I'd encourage you to believe my uh, I would encourage you to read my article proof of work is it is efficient. Um and so here's one and this is an example of of some of the content from that article uh, which would be the subjective use of electricity. So we all use energy mm-hmm. typically in the form of electricity for various things. We have a Christmas tree in this room that has Christmas lights on it. We have a television, there's a candle, there's a light, there's a laptop. They all use electricity. And Marty and I are sitting here talking about Bitcoin and we've got music on and and we're using our electricity however we'd like to use it because we pay for it. Yep. 
we can do whatever we want with this damn electricity. We can waste as much as we want on it. Mm-hmm. You know, we can do whatever we want with it. We paid for it, right? Yeah. I got a I got a Bitcoin miner right here. I can plug it in. We can you be can mining do, some Bitcoin with this as well. You could do whatever you want with it. We could go watch the Kardashians. We could take some selfies. My wife will be doing that later <laughs> at some point. You know, it's it and that's what electricity police really highlights is the absurdity of someone stepping in as the mor- moral police over someone's usage of electricity. Well, it's crazy that Bitcoin gets painted with this brush so vigorously. Uh, and Bitcoin alone, I would argue. Other, I mean, obviously fossil fuels and cars and travel is a, another, the biggest one behind that. But I feel like people are signaling out Bitcoin just because they want to be able to pro- point and be like, ah, it's using that much energy. Like, that's it's, why it's stupid. It's completely virtue signaling. Right. If someone's rational and data-driven, they do not take that side of the argument. And I find it kind of like a little bit disingenuous well it's very disingenuous because unless you subjectively like unless you look at the relative usage of bitcoin's electricity to existing financial systems and then look at the benefits that we get from it it's incredibly efficient and this is something satoshi said like in one of his first bitcoin talk forum posts or one of the first emails. i think it was actually the first email chain after he released the white paper it's about gold, right? Gold yeah, mining. Yeah. Where he's like, gold mining can be viewed as inefficient, but the value we get from the gold is very useful. It's a net positive. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. He says net, po- net positive. Yeah. Um, and I think most people that use the proof of work is, is wasteful argument typically believe that Bitcoin has no value. Mm-hmm. I think that's what really undermines that whole argument or like kind of underpins that whole argument is that people who say that just don't believe Bitcoin has value. How do we how do we help these no coiners? Well, one is teaching them a little bit about thermodynamics. Everything is energy. Mm-hmm. We use energy for everything. So one would be like, okay, well, let's start there because nothing's free. There's no free energy. We have to go pay for it or use it or harness it. So everything requires energy. Um, is Bitcoin's utilization of energy done in a transparent and you know useful useful way? I would say yes. And then how does that compare to other systems that would be comparable to Bitcoin, like gold mining, central banks, et cetera, which I'd, so I did an analysis at the end of the article, which basically looked at Bitcoin's energy consumption and cost relative to the existing financial system. And it's tiny. Um, and that analysis did not include judges or the courts, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> this, that did not include, uh, what else did that not include? And it did not include a bunch of different, energy sources and costs that I could have added. I think it was just, it was just the financial system. And, and that, and that just, that just does a great job of pointing out the absurdity of the intellectual dishonesty of the people calling out Bitcoin. It's like, I don't want to sound like a pompous prick, but it's like, come on, think a little harder. Like think critically. Like, I think they know and they choose not to, I think. And like Vitalik's a really smart guy, but it's intellectually dishonest for him to be this vocal against proof of work. Look, he's shilling his own bags, right? right. He's, he's shilling his product. I get it. But you're going to lose credibility in the long run if you don't at least acknowledge the utility of proof of work. You can still acknowledge it and still say, I think I've made something better, which I don't agree with that. But he subjectively might say that. But to ignore it completely and just to like scream and like point and virtue signal and be like, look at all that waste, I think is going in the long run going to hurt their narrative. Here's a prime example. This is one of my favorite ones between proof of work and proof of stake. Their CapEx costs, 
So the cost to purchase a miner, um, you know, let's say it costs $500 to purchase a miner, mm-hmm. or I could go stake that $500. Because dollars are fungible, because I can use that dollar to go dig a ditch or pay for my electricity or eat a burger, because the, my dollars are fungible in how I spend it and those dollars are fungible in how I earned it, if I dug a ditch, I was paid. If I came up with a new way to efficiently route cars at Uber, I was paid. Mm-hmm. Because dollars are fungible or fiat is fungible and, and crypto is fungible, because they're fungible, the energy costs to create an ASIC miner is identical to the energy costs to stake that money. Yeah. So if you want to even have the argument around proof of work versus proof of stake energy consumption, you're talking about OPEX, but you still have to run servers for staking. <laughs> <laughs> and so and so if you really compare it, you're like, it's actually, if, if you really fully believe that proof of work is a terrible waste of energy, you still can't logically make the argument that proof of stake doesn't use an enormous amount of electricity as well. It costs the much, it costs as just as much, and it's not secure. The costs are just Paul Paul Sports. I say sports because I don't know how to pronounce his last He's name. He's got a really hard last name to pronounce. Truthcoin.info. He's written about this in length, proof of work versus proof of stake, and basically proved what you just said. Like the the costs are just pushed to another area, and then you do not have the same security that proof of work has. Like that is why proof of work is the end all be all, and why we're here is like having the certainty that or close to certainty that uh that the the power expended uh produced uh a block at a certain point in time we see a you know with proof of work we have a a wall that was built in a transparent manner so we know exactly how much it would cost to dismantle the wall Mm -hmm. and that's why it is the most efficient is because there's no more trans there's no more way that there's not a way that it's more transparent that would show how the wall has been built. It's sort you know, you, yeah, you can obfuscate it with proof of stake, but inevitably there's energy underpinning that. And a lot of people, they, they just, they see, they don't think critically about it. And, and Paul's a great, really, really brilliant because his proof of work stuff influenced my piece. Mm-hmm. However, I had to read it four times because he's <laughs> so long. He's, they're like two hour blog posts. They're really long and he's, he's very intelligent, but, yeah, it's it's a little hard to get across for us plebs here, right? You know, or plebs, but yeah. <laughs> I'm actually talking to Paul. I might have him on later next month. I'll have my fingers crossed if he's in town. Oh, that'd be cool, Paul. If you're listening, yeah. Um, yeah, we'll cut. Where are we at? Minute twenty-seven, forty-five. Uh, next one. Okay. One twenty-seven, forty-three. P break. I'm gonna join the answer. We we're talking about proof of work versus proof of stake. Talked about, touched on Paul. Um, for you freaks out there wondering where we went, we just had a bathroom break. We're back now. Time flies when you're drinking beers, having fun, talking about Bitcoin. You forget you have to pay. You take it to the brink to where uh, you got to run to the bathroom immediately. Nothing better to talk about. <laughs> um, so... So proof of work versus proof of stake. So this is one thing I've been thinking about. Like so, last night at the BitDes meetup, there's a lot of ex post consensus people there. People that have previously worked at Ethereum, VC arm consensus, and and we're at BitDevs, looking at Bitcoin and Lightning in particular with uh, with with an open mind and open eye. And it seems as though to me, I would I would argue 
that we're at a point where a lot of the token projects that spun out between 2015 and middle of last year that uh, purported to build on a perceived uh, inefficiency or inability of Bitcoin um, are being proven wrong in the long term because a lot of what a lot of Bitcoiners, including myself, have said over the years is that hey, we're going to be able to do all of this. It's just going to be pushed at different layers of the Bitcoin stack in time, and it seems like that may be coming to fruition. Would you agree with that? Um, let's or, see. Let me replay that. Were you saying that uh, like the like layer one, layer two is being built like a little bit more slowly? No. So I'm saying like Ethereum. Let's use Ethereum as example. Ethereum is built saying, hey, Bitcoin is very uh, rudimentary. It can't do a lot. We want to make sure that you can have smart contracts. You can uh, do script computing at the blockchain level. I would argue that's not a good design, but I would, but the, the desired functionality is very worthwhile. And I have been arguing for years, and as of many others, I'm not alone in this, saying, I agree, I want that as well, but I think it will just come to Bitcoin at different points of the stack. And I think we're very much in the beginning parts of people starting to realize that this is coming to fruition. I think to build, to build a building, you have to build it on a solid foundation. Right. And um, Stellar had a good blog post about building a dApp on Ethereum that it was building skyscrapers on skyscrapers. And I think that's a completely logical way to think about it. And you've seen concessions from Vitalik, which he wrote in a blog post about two months ago, that he doesn't believe anymore that you have to have a full Turing complete scripting language on the layer one, which is a, he doesn't, he doesn't call out Bitcoin in terms of the de- the core development team's maturity, but that is a big concession from Vitalik, right? which indicates that you should push, you should have layer one be as efficient and, and lean as possible and then allow for experimentation to happen on layers above it as you would building any sort of like strong sturdy foundation to mature development uh, like development mindset yeah um and it's just it seems to me that that should be common sense to people but it seems that with i hate to keep picking on ethereum because i've done enough of that on this podcast but for a project it's number two in market cap or it might be number three i'm not sure it's number three is. you've got ripples ripple number two, two now um, well number- ripple because banks like it <laughs> <laughs> ripple just because it is just because the ripple foundation can do whatever they want with that 60 billion ripple they have um but ethereum in particular like just looking at that like bitcoin works as is now ethereum needs to do this that and another thing to become viable in the long run to actually work uh as they market it uh as a world computer yeah and I have this huge thread uh, on Twitter. It's been going on for over a year now where I say, I don't think Ethereum's ever going to transition to POS. In fact, like the longer the del- they delay it, the longer it will be delayed. And Very Nassim, Nassim Taleb of you. The, the, well, I quote Nassim Taleb in the first tweet, tweet. Like the longer it takes, the longer we'll be expected to wait. We've been waiting for a while. And I just think to to build on a, a system that has no idea what it's going to be in the future is just... A big risk uh, if you're a developer, but then if you're storing your money in that protocol, that's like a, a risk I'm not able to take. Well, as a as a startup founder, why would you take startup operational risk and then compound that on protocol risk? Like for developers building DApps, it's incredibly risky. Right. 
and you've got like a sort a very low survival rate for most startups. And then you're compounding that <laughs> you're compounding that risk by building on a protocol that is not scalable in the slightest. <clears throat> you know, for its intended use case, arguably it's never going to be scalable. You know, I so at, at Uber, um, and we we didn't really touch on this earlier, but the teams I was on, I was on Rider Growth, which was the Rider Rider app is the app that we all call Uber. And that was led by Andrew Chen. Mm-hmm. He's now a GP at Andreessen Horowitz. Mm-hmm. So he was my my manager. And we did onboarding engagement and virality. And then later on, I worked on the global data team, which took outside external data and then wove that through the, the decision-making fabric of Uber. And while at Uber, people knew me as the crypto guy, the Bitcoin guy. <laughs> and I, like, I, even in the bear market, I still got a shill. I wear that guy's, uh, that guy's <laughs> bear uh, badge of honor. Yeah, I, I wasn't, you know, there was a chat room at Uber mm-hmm. called Crypto. So I was very prolific in there and um, very, very active in there. And so um, me and another guy got together and we got the top product managers, like the senior PMs of Dispatch. Dispatch does the supply demand modeling for all of Uber. Marketplace, which does the pricing and we and payments and identity. And we got all the senior product managers from those teams uh, because we reached out to Jeff Holden, the chief product officer of Uber, and about blockchain tech. And he was like, brief me on it. You've got three hours, which is pretty big to get an executive's, like three hours of a C-level executive's time. Mm-hmm. And so we briefed Jeff Holden uh, on how blockchain might disrupt Uber's business model. And the smartest minds at Uber who work on these products or who work on these teams we definitively kind of walked away from it going payments and payments and identity might be disrupted in five to 10 years, but like you're never going to have your dispatch system on a blockchain. No. It's extremely inefficient. Uh, blockchains aren't very good for a lot of things. They're very <laughs> good at very few things, right? Like less things that you can count on less than one hand, I would argue. Um, and I think it's taking time for people to realize that. Totally. So and in this in this early first decade of Bitcoin, like Bitcoin growing up and the people interacting with it and learning about it growing up alongside it, like that's what we're coming to realize is hey, we're not may not be able to blockchain the world just because it's open source tech and you could fork it and try to apply it to these things. Well, and that's where I think blockchain became a terminology as a shelling point for all tech innovation as a whole. Right. You know, if I'm in a big company and I want more resources. It's a blockchain project. Right. <laughs> and I'm a startup and I want to get more money from a VC. Well, I put it on a blockchain. It, people respond to incentives, right? Yeah. And so it was totally intuitive. I, I guess in retrospect, it's intuitive how it all kind of blew up um, in popularity because it's the one word you can use to represent something innovative. Mm-hmm. And it's not saying innovation. It's not sh- saying syner- synergy. It's fintech like the, wasn't cutting it anymore. Fintech wasn't cutting it. You know, this is mobile, social, local, mm-hmm. but the 2017 edition, which right. is blockchain. Yeah. So, you know, I, I think blockchains are very bad at doing <laughs> doing almost anything. Yeah, um, and that's like, and I think James O'Byrne at Chaincode, he when he came on the podcast, he really drove it home and had me understand like these systems only work in adversarial mindsets and most my or most aspects of life are not uh you don't want to be adversarial uh, and yeah, you know money is one of the few that you do want to be we're like hey we should all agree 
that at all costs we should fight each other to make sure that this money stays the money that we believe it was at a certain point in time. Because money isn't just a number. Money is energy and time. Mm-hmm. It's stored energy and time. It's got that potential energy. And to to store, you to create that, that, that medium in which you can transfer that value, you had to give up energy and time to get it. And so it's incredibly important that we maintain a ledger, <clears throat> a ledger that can't be tampered with because we're not talking about just money here. We're talking about lifetimes. We're talking about a billion humans' lifetimes. Right. Um, and it's important that that record is kept in a way that is not to be tampered with, that it's kept in a way that can't be manipulated by someone bigger who would like to take it away from someone else. And that's what's so beautiful about this is it's the best record keeping of our of all of human life in a way. It's it's the stored value of all of our energy and time. It's so beautiful. How do we get people to realize the gravity of, of this innovation, though? I mean, obviously we do, I would argue. Um, are we are we naive? Number one, are we naive? Number two, if we're not, how do we how do we convince people of the gravity of this? Well, uh, I heard there's I heard there's some good LSD in San Francisco. <laughs> <laughs> um, some good LSD in my freezer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think I think there's a lot of so I think both the adoption of Bitcoin and the adoption of crypto, primarily Bitcoin, but I'm going to use crypto as a whole. Is there's two factors. One is narrative compression. Where the narrative gets smaller, tighter, condensed, makes more sense, mm-hmm. easily verifiable, easily understood, in conjunction with environmental. So, like a two thousand eight financial crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I can see I can see a moment where both of those pair really well. Where there's like another like crisis of confidence in yeah. institutions, whether it be governments and banks, in conjunction with a really good narrative, that is really kind of the spark. That ignites like the layman's understanding of this. Yeah, I think the tinder's drying up, uh, and I have a feeling that the narrative is going to be condensed over the next eighteen months, in particular, leading up to the the next having and around Memorial Day twenty twenty. I have some very interesting theories uh, having to do with the U.S. election, Bitcoin, the having, uh, and that condensed narrative. I think Bitcoin may become a a ballot issue in twenty twenty. That that would be really cool, right? Um, and it, I'm I'm excited with how robust the the community is, the community and the infrastructure. Bitcoin survived despite all these odds. This little seed was planted in the fucking weirdest part of the internet, <laughs> right? <laughs> and it survived. It magically, you know, magic at the Gathering Online Exchange, a Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, trading card site is where it's first traded right like you couldn't have picked a weirder started by easier yeah by jed mccaleb at uh (laughs) on some beach house in costa rica right i mean it's incredible that it survived honestly mind-blowing that it even made it past year one or year two or year three and so now i'm i'm more bullish than ever because i'm like wow the community, the amount of money, the institutional traders that are coming in, you know, we've only had retail uh, flow so far. Like, wait till we see, you know, most of the world is managed by institutional traders. Like, wait till we see those those macro traders go, hmm, well, my portfolio is $100 billion. And if I add Bitcoin to my portfolio, it improves my sharp ratio. I don't even have to like it. 
I just know I need it. to allocate to it. Yeah. yeah. And and that's when things get exciting. And it seems like uh, Clayton, Clayton from the CFTC was giving some pretty positive remarks at consensus yesterday. He said, you clear up a couple of things when it comes to custody and trade manipulation. But if you clear up those, you should be good to go. That's what it sounded like. Yeah. So, you know, um, so I think Gian Carlos with the CFTC and then you've got Clayton uh, with the Clayton, SEC. Yeah, the SEC and CFTC messed up. So many alphabet soup of different regulators, right? Yeah. So many. Um, but yeah, I think CFTC is overwhelmingly bullish, which is really cool. Giancarlo is really giving the community a thumbs up, uh, which is really, really cool. Uh, SEC obviously is more focused on on ICO side of things. Um, you know, I think, I think we, like we still don't have a mainstream retail product like an ETF mm-hmm. that would facilitate 401ks like this. So you can get your 401k into Bitcoin. Yeah. I mean, that's huge. Like... <laughs> trillions of dollars locked away that can't touch bitcoin for decades right well it's been a decade yeah. hopefully now another decade hopefully it'll be an etf will be approved in the next couple of years but these are the infrastructure these are the core pipes that are being plugged in to where i'm extremely excited about the next the next run up because this will finally you know we had like a little kiddie pool mm-hmm. and now we've got this like ocean with all these pipes connected and the ocean's really low right now. Right. But the, the, you know, the ability to flow capital into Bitcoin, those pipes have, are the biggest they've ever been. And all it takes is a moment where people all collectively share the same illusion that we share. Right. And Which, I really, I really liked uh, the way, uh, believe it or not, Novo phrased it at the Bloomberg conference. I believe it was last month where they were talking about backed and fidelity in particular. No, it was fidelity in particular. Fidelity announced that they're, they were opening their accounts for institutional clients to get exposure to Bitcoin. And the way Novo basically described it is going to be a trickle at first, but the infrastructure is, is has been built in such a way that it can take an onslaught, a, a fire hose of, of uh, volume or liquidity when need be, but it's going to start out as a trickle and eventually build up into like a roaring waterfall or whatever you And a shameless plug here, you know, with uh, Interchange, the product that we're working on, we're one of many different service providers or software providers for institutional traders. So we're part of the infrastructure, the core pipes that are being built. Well, let's end, let's end on uh, Interchange. What, what are you guys building? Yeah. What, so- uh, what, do you got, what do you got in store for picks and shovels as well? Yeah, so Picks and Shovels, you know, the company name uh, is the company name, and then Interchange is the product. Mm-hmm. So Interchange for the, uh, just a kind of easy way to think about it is that it's a mint.com for crypto hedge funds. Okay. That's uh, a good, easy, understandable. I have A-B tested this narrative <laughs> in many, many conversations. It's uh, it's the, the one that gets across the quickest, mm-hmm. and then I can dive in a little deeper on the, on what that really means. So right now... If you're a hedge fund, family office, or a venture capital firm, and you've got XYZ cryptocurrency in different wallets on exchanges, uh, when you ring, and then you've got them, you know, so you've got on chain data, you've got exchange data, you've got manually entered data if you bought into a SAFT. Mm-hmm. So we take all of that disparate financial data and pull that all together. Um, I think anyone here who has actually <laughs> reported their taxes, which I'm one of them, I'm one of the 800 Americans in 2014 who filed their tax return they, that claimed Bitcoin cap gains on it um, 
for the individuals who want to be compliant, which all institutional traders have to be, mm-hmm. um, you know, we help them wrangle all that data together, pull all of that in, sanitize it, standardize it, and then run complex portfolio metrics that enable them to better manage their portfolio and their risk. This is uh, something that is vastly needed in this space because I have heard horror stories of some fund managers who don't even have P&L sheets. Uh, That's right. Daily P&L sheets. Uh, we, we found that you know there's a lot of very sophisticated fund managers. Mm-hmm. There's a lot that are just trying to make things work. You know, I'd say 20% have their own in-house development team. They've got engineers internally that have to custom build this, these tools for them because that's what they had to do. Right. The other 80% use uh, Google Sheets. Right. <laughs> Which is... They use Google Sheets. They have their treasures in like a safety box <laughs> in their office. It's so bushy. Yep. Like coming from the, like, the big leagues where I was in charge of pulling data from Bloomberg, uh, doing all of our daily... Re- daily, monthly, weekly returns every day to send out to our investors as a report. Those were pretty in-depth, like heavy-duty P&L sheets that took in a lot of data, a lot of crunching. And they were Excel sheets, but they were hooked up to, to algorithms and stuff like that. So it wasn't like a, like a, 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 number one, it was Excel. So we owned the data. We're not keeping it on a Google sheet where Google can see your P&L as well. Uh, but number two, it was, it was a sort of, concise process that you need to have i would imagine before you even start investing uh just to have like a reporting and the, the, not even reporting tracking your portfolio like yeah it's it's ingestion of the data it's tracking right. of the assets and it's the um you know transparency that you can show to you know report on the reporting side of things it's showing the different stakeholders that you talk to like your internal team your external stakeholders like your fund administrator it's showing them what's going on. Yeah. Um, you're providing visibility to different stakeholders and, to, and, and what you're doing. Whereas now you're kind of shuffling CSVs back and forth and and, and it's, it's delayed data and, and maybe like your pricing methodology might be kind of funky. Right. Um, so yeah, it's with the explosion of ICOs and blockchains and the complexity, Bitcoin's complexity alone <laughs> is huge. Right. But then you add all these chains too, and it just became enormous, an enormous challenge. So we're, this simply put, we take complexity and we turn that into simplicity. I like that. I'm a big fan of making uh, complex things simple. That's what I'm trying to do here with this podcast and the newsletter is try to simplify all this, simplify all these narratives. You know, it's funny because uh, you're, uh, I first learned about you when someone at Bloomberg sent me a screenshot of, <laughs> of your uh what? You, you had you had taken one of my tweets and put it in your newsletter, mm-hmm. and this is back last fall, and uh, they were and this was someone at Bloomberg. So guys at Bloomberg are reading your uh, your content. Shout out to uh, shout out to the Bloomberg crowd. Shout out to Joe Weisenthal. I know you're reading. I see you every day. <laughs> Dude, Joe Joe's actually pretty sharp. Yeah, for... Joe's been on this podcast. We've had. Uh, oh really? Yeah. Oh, I got I got to listen to that episode. Really, he's one of my favorite skeptics. He's one of the few skeptics that I uh, respect with with a. Uh, that I have a lot of respect for. I think he's very rational. He at least he at least comes with a well intention to like have a rational conversation. And he's a great instigator. He's a he's a great instigator. I appreciate his instigations. Um, no, but thank you for reading. Thank you for for humbling me with that. But I think you are doing the same with your the book that you're putting out and the based off the series that you just wrote. And these are very important things. It's because people. 
we know from experience like newcomers coming to this is so daunting to try to jump into this this rabbit hole where <laughs> the fuck do i start yeah your buddy's like hey tell me about bitcoin and you're like okay well uh <laughs> do you legit have a week here's to- here's three medium posts a tweet storm <laughs> <laughs> right and the bitcoin standard yeah which uh you know safe is safe is great um bitcoin standard is definitely written for austrian school yeah. of economics crypto or bitcoiner types yeah it's not made for the layman no uh I- I think it's a good start for the layman to, to like to to start questioning money. It's like all right, because that's the, my, that's my favorite part of the Bitcoin scenarios. They barely talk about Bitcoin; they just talk about the history of money mostly. It's the best content we have now. Yeah, exactly. But like you said, we're on the front lines of strengthening this narrative, and I'm happy to be on the front lines with you. And I think we're making some progress. It's been fun, you know, to fully understand a topic. You have to teach it, mm-hmm. and you have to explain it simply. And that's where constantly you see with ICOs, I think some are working on cool ideas, but you constantly saw this uh, complexity theater, this hand wavy, I'm an engineer, here's really complex topic. But when you boil it all down, you're like, wait a second, you're just trading off this really simple thing for this simple thing. Exactly. And you're just obfuscating that through this layers of complexity. Engineers being building stuff for engineers. And that's my favorite thing when I talk about engineers, we're thinking about these heady, like uh, somewhat abstract ways to apply this technology. I'm like, I'll go to a window. I'll be like, look at all these people walking on the street down there. Like, do you think any of them will be able to use this system in earnest at any point soon? And the answer is usually no. Um, and Bitcoin, like you said, Bitcoin's UX and private key storage and sending and receiving transactions is hard enough. Like, let's figure that out and then go from there. I would argue. Yeah, we've got a bunch of basics to cover here. One is like, what is money? How do I store it in this new cryptocurrency? How do I stay safe? And I think, you know, it's, it's, uh, we, we came in and we're like, what if we just decentralized everything? And I'm like, <laughs> look, I'm a huge proponent of that. I got to be like, I've been torrenting since I was like 12. I think Tor is awesome. Like, you know, I've even got the, I just bought some Gotenna's. Oh yeah, I got a uh, Daniela, CEO of Gotenna, coming on in the next couple of months. Oh man, very excited to talk to her. Nice, nice. We're big Gotenna fans here at uh, Tales from the Crypt. Maybe you can get a discount code. <laughs> I bought I bought a pack of four, so I can distribute it to me and my buddies. That's what uh, Matt O'Dell, who is actually on his way here, uh, he's big Gotenna freak. He's got like a bunch of uh, Gotenna relays running around the city. They're, like I'm sure he's probably got one hidden in Central Park somewhere. So early, when I first got involved in Bitcoin, I, I wanted to make it super robust, very like anti-nuclear. Mm-hmm. Uh, so looked at propagating blocks through Hamnet or Ham Radio <laughs> <laughs> and uh, satellites, which is Jeff, possible. Jeff Garzik back in that day, uh, if you go on to Bitcoin Talk, his proposal for BitSat or propagating blocks through satellites. I remember this? Yep. Zero block was my, I, I I don't know why I didn't create a personal account, but the zero zero block comments on that and that was me. Really? Yeah. So <laughs> I was like, this is amazing. Yeah, this increases its survivability. Um, and so a huge proponent, I'm a huge proponent of decentralized tech. And so to kind of bring this all home, I'm the biggest fan for future like decentralized projects. But all these ICOs, I'm like, you're just shooting yourself in the foot. I, I, I want it to happen, but you're you're killing it. Like the way that you've structured your cap table or your token table 
having leaders, having yeah. free mind. With Dexes, we found that having a leader is really, really risky. Right. Um, With the IDEX, right? Right. I'm like, look, we built a permissionless system. Let's build some badass shit. Let's build some cool stuff. Yeah. We don't have to ask for permission. We can build whatever we want. <laughs> but to do that, you need discipline. Mm-hmm. You know, you need to be anonymous. You have to choose. And doesn't mean that you can't be anonymous and have his, like a Zcash, <laughs> like a privacy coin address. You right. can still get paid in like a to- actually truly anonymous cryptocurrency. Um, yeah, and that's what's so disappointing is like the cypherpunks would have never done something like that. While David Chom did. Which is un- which is unfortunate. Yeah. Um, oh yeah, he came out with an ICO. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's a, it's, uh, yeah. it's one of our favorite quotes here. Uh, every uh, there's a lot of scorned cryptographers and economists out there who wish they were Satoshi and are trying to uh, trying to <laughs> uh, beat him at what he did. Um, Think of Larry White in particular with Initiative Q right now. Yeah. Yeah, and that's where. You know, that was what was so brilliant about Satoshi is he tried to make every possible, every single step along the way. He was like, this is fair. This is fair. I'm trying to show you that it's fair. Mm-hmm. I'm not trying to control too much. I set these parameters because I've aligned all the incentives properly. I'm trying to make sure it survives. I've planted my tree. I, sele- I very carefully spliced the genetic code. I then took that seed and I planted it in the right soil, with this, which is the cypherpunks the right season and then I'm, I'm trying to cultivate it and keep it alive and to do this uh i have to leave and so as soon as gavin goes to the cia i'm out of here and uh, <laughs> it's, it's all up to you guys now and here we are seven years eight years after his departure bitcoin's still kicking it's not where it was last this point last year <laughs> price wise but i would say fundamentally the infrastructure and the stack being built on top of it like that we can't Dive to, unfortunately, we don't have enough time to jump into it, but the the demo that I saw last night of Lightning, the lightningjewel.com by Willow Byrne, shout out Will, it is something, it's like, it was a tech demo, I haven't had, I've been apprehensive to say this all day, I wrote it in the news, I wrote the newsletter, I didn't say it in the newsletter, I've been telling it to, to friends and people in private Slack channels, I haven't had the guts to say it until I've been three beers deep. But I honestly have not had that like holy shit moment watching a tech demo since the first iPhone. Wow. Yes. Okay. And I was an iPhone freak. I owned the first iPhone. I had to have it. Were you when one of the guys it. down in Manhattan, like yeah. waiting two hours in, in, in the Philly. snow? Yeah. In <laughs> or Philly. in Philly? Okay. Uh, but I saw Steve Jobs give the first demo of the iPhone. I was like, I need, this is a piece of technology I need to have. I want to have. I think it's going to change the world. And obviously it has over the course of the last 10 years. Last night, sitting there at BitDevs New York, watching Will present this, I was like, holy shit. This is the way people are going to use the internet in the future. Like, there's, like, I thought immediately the Wall Street Journal uh, paywall that they put up. And imagine if you had Jewel, the Jewel extension, not J-U-U-L, you freaks, okay? Jewel as in, like, an energy Jewel. If you had that extension, the Wall Street Journal would be able to say, send you a message. Hey, we noticed that you have a lightning node hooked up. In your extension, do you want to pay two cents to read this? Boom, three seconds, not even done. Lightning, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of Lightning, and also I'm close with Elizabeth Stark. Mm-hmm. Uh, before I came back into crypto, because I, during the cold crypto winter, I went to go work at Uber, wanted to come back. 
Elizabeth, Elizabeth was one of the people that I talked to to help me color in the new landscape because it was very different from when I had left. Mm-hmm. And so I uh, really admire her and, and what she's done over at Lightning. Um, and same with Brian Vu. Uh, Brian's over there as well. He's one of the early guys at the Bitcoin meetup. Mm-hmm. And Brian's just a nice person overall. He's a really great guy. Um, so excited about like Lightning. I wrote a tweet storm, by the way, on Lightning FUD. So if you don't believe in Lightning Lightning yet because you have some reservations about it, please check it out on Twitter. Just type in Dan Held Lightning FUD. It's a 25-tweet tweet storm where he comprehensively very, very great tweet storm thank you thank you it i got a little bit annoyed with the lightning fud arguments out there the uh, arguments out there that were kind of baseless i just don't get it because if lightning turns out to be a failure we can abandon it lightning always... here, here's what's great lightning in its worst form let's say completely quote unquote fails it would still reduce on-chain transaction volume by like 90 percent <laughs> because you could still have the big hubs mm-hmm. open up a channel between each other All right so like ARB between exchanges would instantly kind of evaporate uh, because you would have these channels open between um, Coinbase and, and Poloniex. Well, I think it goes back to what we were talking to about earlier. and uh, A lot of ego gets in the way where uh, previously, uh, previously vaulted, uh, vaulted is that the word I'm looking for? Narratives sort of don't stand the, the metal of time anymore. Yeah, it's, it's sort of like Schrodinger's cat in terms of narratives. Mm-hmm. You've got all these narratives that could exist, but upon critical observation, that wave function collapses upon reality, yeah. which is what what is real, what yeah. works. The narrative dies pretty quick when you realize uh, <laughs> if you want to have proper block propagation and proper decentralization, yeah, you're going to need to make some trade-offs. Yep, and I, I think Lightning is a brilliant layer two solution. It's It's... The, one of the longest running projects in the works. There's a lot of people working on it. A lot of people, I think the challenges that they have are very solvable. Mm-hmm. I don't see any material technical problems. Um, and it, it brings about instantaneous payments. It brings about almost no fee payments. And it brings about um, confidentiality or you could, you know, uh, fungibility. It increases Bitcoin's fungibility. And, and that's something that no one's really, not many people talk about, but well, the onion routing is incredible. Well, well, that's incredible because that is a possibility. And then what Will was describing last night is his visions of Web LN, which is like what Ethereum is doing with Web3, but applied to Bitcoin and Lightning, where you can be totally anonymous if you want to, like you were saying, but if you want to carry a reputation around on the Lightning network, you can use a specific node and carry your reputation from site to site. Each site will say, hey... We noticed that Marty's node has been a very good node. It has is, it is allowed a lot of liquidity to flow through it, so we are willing to interact with him. And you have sort of a reputation system that a lot of people thought Bitcoin would turn into happening on the Lightning Network. And I think there's really cool stuff with, like, I know you've had Jeremy Welch in here. Mm-hmm. Jeremy's an awesome guy. Yeah. Um, it's like, actually after, after the... Um, after the lightning jewel presentation last night, I immediately introduced Jeremy to, to Will. I was like, you two have to meet. Cause <laughs> nice. I was like, I want to download this extension and play with it with my Casa node and you need to like figure out how I can find my macaroons, Jeremy. So as well. <laughs> let's make it happen. I, I think the hardware nodes plus the, the hardware Bitcoin nodes plus lightning node are really critical components of kind of tying the physical world to, to the digital one. Um, it's also, I think, probably going to be like a, br- a badge of honor 
when you go into like your buddy's right. place and if I came in here and I saw that you had a Casa Note, I'd be like, oh, okay. Oh, I have one. It's in my closet. But why isn't it out? You gotta, you gotta proudly display my that. It's not out here. You gotta, you gotta I proudly display that, Marty. The box is right here. <laughs> Proof. Well, now, Jeremy, now Jeremy's gonna know. He's gonna know that it's not prominently displayed. It's not, I don't see it on your Christmas tree. You this don't have it I keep like my that. artifacts. I keep my artifacts in the open. <laughs> I have my 21 computer over here in the corner. Oh, nice. No, that's nice. Nice. That's, uh, that's my artifact. It's, uh, we're we're very old art people here in the Bent household and uh, Twenty One Co. The Casa Note will be out here in due time. It's it's still useful right now. Though. You could you could kind of create what the uh, the Stevens brothers Bart and Brad have at Blockchain uh, Capital's office. What's that? Uh, so by the way, I love those guys. They're really really cool. Spencer Bogart's great too, and Derek. I love um, Spencer. Spencer's a great advocate for the space. He is. When he gets on CNBC, I'm like, or uh, Bloomberg, I'm like. I wonder what he's going to say <laughs> by Bitcoin. <laughs> <laughs> when I see him, I'm just like, thank God it's him and not somebody else. Spencer is really eloquent, really, really clear, confident. Um, and Brad and Bart have done a great job in the space. They've been around for a very long time. Derek, uh, kind of one of their newer additions. He's really sharp too. So uh, love those guys. Uh, anyways, at their office, they have a bunch of old miners. So, really? Yeah. So... If you go into one of their conference rooms, they have some of the old miners from like 20, like Butterfly Labs and like really old stuff. They ever um, get their hand on a gall miner by chance? <laughs> I don't think anyone ever did, right? Didn't Josh, Josh ran away with all Josh that money. Josh Garza ran away with all that money. Man, there's so many scammers in crypto. I, that's why I say I've survived. Right. I didn't lose my password. I didn't, I didn't, um, you know, I didn't tr- send Bitcoin to the wrong address. <laughs> but do you, do you feel yeah. like, uh, like you're stronger because of it? Yeah, but I think I've aged mentally about forty years. I um, hear you there. Yeah, it, which is interesting. I've, I've actually been talking to people about this. Um, you know, so we're we're at Consensus Invest. Or that's why I'm in town, and um, talked to a couple of people about this last night, and it seemed to be people seem to agree with it, which is that I think the cohort of Bitcoin investors, because of our resiliency with, you know, many boom bust cycles in a very condensed amount of time, we will be the most mentally prepared investor cohort in history to where when, you know, if after being in Bitcoin for maybe two decades, like 20 years, we will have experienced more boom bust cycles than almost anyone would in their lifetime. Holy shit. Which means that we can allocate capital the most efficiently due to our resiliency and our resolution and our, our sort of ability to look into the future and then be patient, you know, the low time preference. In fact, you're just battle tested. Most people won't have as many data points to to get it right. That's right. Like if I sit here and I see my Apple stock drop twenty percent, fine. <laughs> <laughs> it's cash flowing. It's a business. Great. <laughs> like after surviving, you know, it's like the uh, the ba- like Bane from from uh, Batman. Mm-hmm. I like, was born in. I was born in it. <laughs> I was uh, I was born in the volatility. You merely adopted it. 2017 Bitcoiners. <laughs> I was born in it. Exactly. Been here for years. You'll get used to it at some point. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. We. And, and imagine one more, two more of these. Right. Mm-hmm. Like we'll be like, we've survived, and now I gaze upon these other asset classes with ultimate peace. <laughs> You think you can survive 80% drops consistently? You know, like that. that's, we're, we're hardened. I have disdain for you crying after a 30% drop. Suck it up. 10% drop? I'm buying. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, 
it's crazy. We we survived through this the most volatile asset class in human history. Well, and that's actually a good sign, right? That it is this volatile because you would hope a new monetary good. Like if you, it has to be this volatile. It was going to be a linear path towards hyper Bitcoinization. I mean, yeah. that would never happen. And I want to point out the quote. Uh, I forget. I think it was soil, maybe. Uh, Alex Hardy, you quoted, where Bitcoin is more of a psychological phenomenon than it is a te- technological. Yeah, um, which really I agree is. with. I mean, Alex and I, we meet up in the city a lot. We talk about this, like it is, and I say this all the time on this podcast: Bitcoin changes you more than you change Bitcoin. Bitcoin, in the long run, will change you more than we ever affect the protocol. Which is um, why I like it. Yeah, exactly. Is that humans can't change it very, and, very easily. But it, but it is a psychology thing where it's like, all right, we're trying to rewire 7 billion brains to come t- to grips with the fact that this may be an okay form of money for the future. Well, if you look at the logarithmic price action and then you look at the supply, they're really, really close. It's, <laughs> right? it's kind of crazy. I mean, the way that Satoshi architected it was pretty brilliant. Yeah. And some people bash Satoshi for the aggressiveness of the supply schedule, but I, I think it was necessary. Uh I also think he was human. He was like, I want to see this in my lifetime, right. which is going to take decades. Yeah. But he's like, I don't want to wait 100 years. Exactly. <laughs> and that he, makes a lot of sense. And and he, I think, yeah, it's actually great that you brought that up. Not many people talk about this. Like, why did you choose that supply schedule, mm-hmm. that issuance schedule? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's actually it's actually a fascinating thing to think about. I wonder, you know, if Satoshi, if he went and he was like, okay, well... If I make it too slow, yeah, how do you choose a proper issuance schedule? That's really tough. Um, and so, you know, I'm, I'm really, it's pretty fascinating how perfectly whatever he chose, I mean, what he chose is what we have. It worked. Yeah. We're here now. We just, in, I guess the next big hurdle would be to figure out the fee market can sustain itself. I have confidence that it will be able to. That's my next article. Yeah. All right. Well, I can't, I don't want to, I don't want you to, to spoil anything we've been here for two hours and 15 minutes almost yeah i, I hope everyone <laughs> had enjoyed their experience throughout this podcast it's been it's been a long we've had a couple beers so it's it's been a very we've enjoyable a few beers and i think uh, the freaks out there are very much enjoying this conversation it was a great one dan you have a parting note for the freaks huddle hey you heard it from the man himself dan held is telling you to huddle he's held for a while he's huddled for a while he can say he is held throughout time that's working for him dan it's been a pleasure speaking with you it was a great two hours uh really really appreciate you taking the trip to brooklyn um i hope you have fun tonight uh i hope you come back uh and come to the studio again and i'm sure we'll have much more to talk about as bitcoin will be in a completely different spot the next time we speak well thanks for having me marty and uh, glad we could finally meet up bang bang peace and love freaks